Hey, everybody. A little, little early jumping the gun tonight. Uh, Scott, are you there? Uh, I can't see my uh, board too well. I am. I am. Chuck, thanks. I'm looking forward to tonight. Good. We've got uh, we've got lots of news and uh, lots of drama on the side, which I always get uh, get uh, amazed about. But uh, got some lot lots to talk about. A big day and uh, late breaking sort of important developments. So uh, looking forward to getting into it. We all are too, Chuck. Can't wait. Welcome up, Scott. Good to see you. Good to see you too, Chuck. Hey, Alan. Good to see you, brother. I know you were busy rooting around the nest. Uh, something I admire, a skill I admire you for, because uh, frankly, folks, I don't even know how to get into the nest. And even if they did let me in, I'd probably break something. So it's probably good that I'm on the outside. Well, and also he has to put them up in reverse order, you know, so that's tricky. It, it, that is I, true. I rarely succeed at that. <laughs> but the, You're, the you... oh, please go ahead, Alan. I'm sorry. I was no, Chuck. I was I was just going to say the the first uh, map up in the nest uh, is Hersan, uh, and and we can start there in just one minute. Uh, so uh, go ahead. Then we'll do a a quick preview of the night, and uh, and maybe go right to the maps. We can do that. And Alan, I was just going to, we, this is live radio folks. We don't even get the back channel stuff. Alan, if you give them uh, 90 seconds, I can go. I sat down without my water. So I'm going to go right for the water and I'll be right back. <laughs> if that's okay. I'll see you in a second. That is perfect. You know, I do the same thing. You have to stay hydrated uh, during bullet points. Really, you have to stay hydrated throughout any Maria report day and night. We're here 24 hours a day, uh, seven days a week, of course. And without water, there's uh, a greater likelihood that you get tongue-tied. Uh, maybe later on in the evening, I'll, uh, and I mean very close to the end of my shift, I'll switch from water to red wine or something like that. Scott, you have your water with you? I actually don't at the moment because I'm walking in the park, but I will get it when I get back to the, get back to the house. If any good water fountains in that park, I hope so. <laughs> well, that's true. There, there are, there are water fountains. There are water fountains. So I'm, I'm okay. Okay. Well, welcome. Welcome back, Chuck. I am back from the uh, refrigerator, folks. It didn't take too long, and uh, made made the round trip. Didn't fall. It was pretty good. So you didn't have to go to the well. Uh, <laughs> no, not the well. So I, I'm getting the impression as I as I look through the maps we're going to look at tonight, and and beginning still in Harrison, although it's a, a it's the oldest map uh, up in the nest. All the other maps are are quite. Uh, current, uh, but I'm getting the feeling that Ukraine is putting on a lot of pressure all the way from Kherson to Bakhmut. Is is that accurate? Uh, Chuck, you may be speaking into a muted mic. Yep, 
I am. And the bad thing about having headphones on is I'm listening to my sonorous voice on the headphones and don't know my mic's not hot. But yeah, lots of uh, lots of pressure. Uh, a couple of very interesting developments, and Russia, you know, is having to play whack-a-mole, folks, with with where uh, where to respond to Ukrainian progress at some very key locations. Uh, interestingly, this afternoon, uh, Ukraine defense—I'm sorry—the uh, UK defense intelligence came out with an assessment that lines up with what uh, Alan and I and uh, Scott have been talking about for the last week or so. Always good to see uh, when the E-ring guys uh, agree with what we're saying, and that is they are detecting uh, troop deployments, Russian troop deployments, uh, away from Zafarista and into Kherson. And that was something that we predicted that... uh, the Russians are going to have to rob Peter to pay Paul, and uh, that these these crossing points, and recently, especially around Kherson, they have had a big effect on where Russia is going to position its troops. So remember, if you if you can lure the Russians into that triangle, bound by uh, the Crimean Peninsula and the bad waters there in the south. The hypotenuse of the triangle is the Dnipro River, and the altitude of the triangle is uh, M18 Highway going from Crimea through Melitopol up to Kamiansky. You stuffed Russia into that coffin corner, right? Those guys aren't going to have any effects on the big show, which is the east-west battlefront from Kamiansk to Vuladar and Andrivka. And uh, whether or not you elect to cross at Kherson, you have you have div- diverted, you know, uh, tens of thousands of Russian troops. So, in a large measure, mission accomplished. But uh, some interesting developments on where, how, and uh, when they've been crossing. So we should begin in Kherson again, uh, because there are a lot of interesting developments in Kherson. Boy, Chuck, I hope I got up the most recent map. If I didn't, uh, I can find it and very easily get it up there. But a lot of interest in the pontoon bridges that uh, seem to have been set up to enhance Ukraine's ability to get heavy equipment, armor, lots of troops across quickly. And are they expanding this bridgehead? Yeah, absolutely. Had some interesting feedback. Actually, it's not interesting because it's kind of predictable. Uh, Where are the pontoon spans? I just paid $50 for a satellite shot and I can't see them. And to which I'd say, uh, folks, pontoon crossing points, uh, they're not like the Golden Gate Bridge, right? (laughs) You can put a pontoon span across uh, the Dnipro at night and you break it up during the day. Uh, My information source, God bless them, was the same source that kept me appraised hour by hour on the the raid against uh, Kojachi uh, Lahiri, right? (laughs) Told me that uh, uh, majors had been captured told me the, the means by which the sentries were overwhelmed, 
and told me how the captures went down on and on. So not throwing my source under the bus. This information is good and solid. And I'm not very surprised that the pontoon bridges didn't stay up all day. Wow. Uh, not, not a surprise. Uh, you know, the, the other thing is that, of course, they're, they're not going to be there uh, all the time. We do know that uh, the two spans were put up. Uh, this position was reinforced. Uh, this has led to further uh, Russian troop deployments. Uh, Ukraine is not giving up uh, this location. Uh, they, are, they are doing it. So I, it's still, you know, it is a place to watch. Uh, this is, we've got two, two active crossing points now. Uh, one north of Oleshki, and of course the other at uh, Kozachi Lahari. We're still looking at the at the intersection of the M14, M17, and and P57. Put your finger on that location, and that is probably one of the most critical places on the whole battle on the whole battle space. So very important developments here. And uh, it's looking, you know, it's looking good. Moving forces. A- abs- absolutely, and and again, so you you, you know you these, these are things that that uh, you know they're developments. They don't you don't build a monument to a military movement. I mean, it happens, and then it uh, you know, and you may not see the see the uh, you may not see it during the day. The other thing that can, you know, in my let's 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 not say it's a confirmation, but something validly supporting this hypothesis is the fact that the Russians have continued to shell the exact location in uh, in Polnyatovikov right there. They have continued to shell that crossing point night and day, and I would suggest to some detractors, why is that? Why would they be shelling that particular place on the riverbank? I might suggest that perhaps that is where the pontoons have been dispersed to. And there is no doubt that Ukraine remains in contact solidly on the South Bank. And uh, there is combat going on right now on the Vistalvika Maturia Road. And uh, life is going on. And... UK UK intelligence um, uh, confirming troop movements, which we foresaw, and uh, which of course Russia has to do. They've absolutely got to respond to this. Uh, let's just go to David, then to Scott. David, go ahead, please. Ah, oh, thank you very much. I was going me, me, me. I let me let me 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 speak. <laughs> Hello there. Hey, Chuck. hey, David. How are you, pal? Good <laughs> uh, to talk very, to you. Very, very, very good. So I've seen. I've uh, you, you know. I've um. I've seen the tweet. So I'd like to say a couple of things, if I may. Right. So this time last year, uh, for those of you who have been long-term listeners, will have heard me. Uh, say on a number of occasions right how how this could be done right and none of which would be seen by satellite in actual fact i was very confused last year as to why it wasn't done because it made no sense to me uh, because leaving a pontoon up um is just an accident waiting to happen isn't it chuck because that's just begging for artillery fire to come in 
right? You, so, it, it, it absolutely is. Of course. Why would you do that? No, only an idiot would do that, right? So, so the, and, and the Ukrainians aren't idiots, right? So, so uh, the the usual way to do something like that is, if you are within artillery fire, is to do something at night, where is the time where you are least likely to be spotted, and then first light in the morning, you remove the pontoon because we have to remember these pontoons. The each individual section is powered, right, and or you might not um, you might not set it up as a complete pontoon you just might set them up as pontoon ferries so individual pieces or or dual pieces of uh, uh, pontoon attached together and operate them as a ferry none of which would be seen on a satellite photo uh, the uh, i was uh, the uh, I was raging a little bit earlier. I'm, I'm not so raging so now, uh, but it's just a little bit astonishing. They're getting their supplies somehow, right? Uh, and and how are they getting their supplies if there's, let's just say, there's over a company's worth of people over there? That would be, if they were in ribs, that would be continuous crossings of ribs. You would need a bigger, much better way of getting your, uh, your supplies over. Uh, so, um, I thought I'd come in. It's not that you needed supporting fires, Chuck, but it's always useful for someone to go, yes, we've been saying this for absolutely ages. This is how it would probably happen. Um, and, and in fact, this area is one of the areas that if you drew a whole load of lines and went, I'm likely to do this, to do a pontoon or a ferry, it would be one of the areas you might uh, look at. I'm still interested in what's going to happen further you, east. David, are you trying to make French friends? <laughs> yeah, 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 I am. <laughs> did did I succeed? <laughs> David, one word. Argentcourt. <laughs> That's where the two fingers come from, I understand. That means I've got my bow fingers as far as From, from the Welsh told. archers, yes. Yes. Well, and so there, there are some other uh, supports to our hypotheses. The force, the force that Ukraine has put across the river, as as David has just pointed out, uh, it, it requires massive resupply that could not be done by ribs uh, to some of our more fervent attackers. Uh, first of all, I urge you to, you know, uh, maybe consult the Chicago Book of Style next time to communicate a little more broadly. But there is, uh, throughout history, but more, more recently, let's just say in the Vietnam conflict, North Vietnam was able to cross innumerable bridges, uh, rivers, with uh, submergible pontoon sections. And lo and behold, they were evil, even able to cross armor. And again, using using pontoons that had, let's just put it this way, limited visibility. And and let's also do this. Let's put the proof in the pudding. Let's see how long Ukraine is able to remain. And uh, I agree with David, a company size element across the river. Let's see how long they're able to uh, resupply and support that. And, uh, you know, the proof will be in the pudding. So, an interesting, interesting, uh, interesting occurrences. A a tactical uh, situation that's evolving in a very predictable manner, and uh, you know, 
that's it. And I also would say, you know, if you if you got you really so much want to tear this down, I mean, what's in it for you, really? <laughs> I mean, and let's just see if this element is still here a week from now, company element or larger, you're going to have to explain why you don't see ribs crossing the river every day. And regarding the vulnerability of river traffic in the daylight, very interesting uh, video going around right now showing what happens to a Russian boat on the river in broad daylight where they got to eat a drone. So I'm looking at night crossings. I'm looking at a sustained logistical link. And I'm frankly waiting for that intersection of the M14, M17. I'm looking for that. And that will be a wonderful moment to report on. I would add a little bit to that, Chuck, is I suspect part of the confusion is by uh, especially many who spend their time in the daylight. Um, they spend their time thinking this is where everything happens when you and I know hardly anything or, or in fact, reality is you would expect not a lot to be happening in the daylight and everything to be happening at night time because that's pretty much the safest time. Although this was dispelled by the Russians who've got it completely wrong because they insist on doing everything in the daylight, which just allows them to be killed in huge numbers. You're, you know, that, that is the other thing too, for, you know, the, a, a lot of people watching this for the first time and commenting and, Almost nothing happens in daylight, folks. I mean, only in desperation have I ever had to operate during the day or occasionally operating during the day because absolutely nobody expected us to do anything in the daylight. And uh, as we've seen throughout this whole war, you know, I, I report every morning based on a 0600 uh, report of the Ukrainian general staff, and they are largely reporting what happened before the sun came up and that's always the big data dump and that's that's where we see the big movements yeah the original ukrainian raiders uh, here in harrison didn't cross the river in daylight and knock on major tom's door like a fedex driver at noontime uh, and capture him it was done in the dead of night uh scott go ahead I wanted to come up right away when you mentioned the two uh, crossings, two places, because I've seen uh, reports that the Ukrainians have also crossed at Novokohovka, and I was wondering if that's premature or if your sources have anything to say about that. Um, so there could be as many as three uh, beachheads across the across the river yeah there there have, have, have been some precision artillery strikes on russian facilities at nova harkova i i don't have any uh reports on that yet but uh, scott i can't i can't discount it and uh you know we'll see i mean i get uh you know i, I get reports reliable reports when i get them so you know i'll but i'll definitely look into that the other, you know, the other great, uh, uh, great confirmer here, and we'll be talking about this in other places along the along the battlefront today. You look at our, you look at Russian artillery strikes, and they have been occurring now with increasing regularity on towns and villages and crossroads that the Russians allegedly control, 
And that means, you know, at the very least, raiding activity by uh, Ukrainian forces. And there is a lot of spooky things happening in the dead of night across the Dnipro. And uh, that's always interesting to me as a, you know, as a spooky person who worked at night. That's always important to me. Uh, let's go to G-Man. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, everybody. Um, hey, bud. The man who never sleeps. Uh, well, I just had a nap there. Um, but, yeah, woke up in time just to, to hear you, you know. So we we catting up. Um, we own the night, you know. That's how it is. Um, <laughs> we do. Anyway. Um the um, I'm interested about these these pontoons. Um, I know in the Falklands they uh, they used um, the Royal Marines uh, uh, engineers used the Maxi floats, which were um, you could join a number of them together, um, and they had engines and what have you. So you, they were basically like yeah, ferry pontoons. Is that the sort of thing we're thinking of or um or what, what or something obviously ukraine has developed uh, can, can i yeah, add they... to that can i chuck is that of okay of course please absolutely oh, very yes, much. Uh, so anyway uh, so uh, you talk about five nine commando there uh uh, uh man yeah. yeah um so i knew a lot of the lads there. in fact one of the guys who uh, we lost uh at that time anyway um so no, I would expect that nowadays, so I know what you're talking about, they would probably be using something like the, they're not even called it, they were, I think, M1s when I was when I was in there, but I think they're M4s or something like that. They're a mobile pontoon. It's like a, looks like a truck that, that, that moves out into a ferry that you can join together and uh, then, uh, and then you could use it as a pontoon, or you could use it as a ferry if you want to. And you could put multiples of them together as well. I would guess that they're using that. I would also guess my uh, my preference, as I've said for ages, is uh, because I still don't like the fact that for eight hours it would be a static target. I would still suggest that the best way forward would be them to operate them as a ferry, uh, but. Uh, who knows? They may have put them over uh, uh, differently because guess what? They might know that you know the risk of the Russians seeing them at night time is quite low. Uh, but I mean, the other option is is you could lay it as a bridge as well, right? So the water level is probably I don't know the probably deepest at three or four meters, and there they do have some uh, some uh, some uh, uh, some bridges that you could lay under uh, along there as well using and you. Probably drop them off the side of ferries, one of those ferries as well. Yeah, there's, you know, and of course the the, the pontoon sections themselves, uh, you know, it, uh, the amphibious operations. Uh, I, I started uh, my naval career. Uh, if I had flunked out of buds, I would have been sent right to the amphibious navy because they, while I was waiting for my buds class, they sent me to amphibious warfare school. Uh, but we, we call them causeway sections. Uh, we can actually flood them uh, to to sort of sink them. Uh, they're rectangular. Uh, these are the strictly amphibious things, but they're you can they're they're you can put them on a trailer and move them around. 
Uh, and I expect that this was mostly what was done as well. Uh, I, I am betting that uh, there was a lot of ferrying going on. But just like when you're building a bridge, it's the abutments and the landing points. So I am, I'm reasonably certain that uh, you know where these vehicles were coming ashore, and uh, I I have it on good authority that there are vehicles on the on the south uh, south shore. Uh, they likely landed uh, where a causeway section had been likely sunk a little bit so the wheels can get traction and they can get over that crossing point and not turn that into a big quagmire. So, you know, we've seen a bunch, David. Uh, I think it's wheels at this point, but I don't, uh, I, I cannot rule out the tracked vehicles. One of the reasons why I think there might be some armor, uh, on the South is if you're in for a penny, you're in for a pound, right? So if you are going to, if you are going to, to run this pontoon section across, uh, you know, why not? So that's, that's one of the reasons I think if you're going to risk this sort of uh, crossing, uh, why not make it worth your while? But again, yeah. I cannot confirm that. Do but the, uh, David, what do you think? You've seen it. No, no, no. I, 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 do the I, French... Do the French operate self-propelled or motorized ferry pontoons, or they have never heard of this? Everyone I know operates those, I think. The, I, I think the Germans invented them, actually. I think oh, they, were the, the they were the first... Right. Yeah, I, I guess. Yeah, I didn't want to go there, but you did, so... But anyway, yes. But David, please tell us why this is such a great idea because this is your favorite thing, isn't it? Well, I spend a lot of time have spent a lot of time talking about it. So, so Chuck's point: if you're going to take something, if you're going to put a pontoon over that takes heavy equipment, then not putting heavy equipment or your heavier some heavy equipment over it doesn't really make that much sense, right? Uh, You probably wanting to put stuff over so and it would make sense if you've got some ifes because you've got something that's got 30 mil cannons on it well that's a decent bit of firepower and for what also you're giving your troops in there a little bit more mobility a little bit more protection and all the other things and and it helps with getting that beachhead right because that's what they want or the beachhead bridgehead whatever you want to call it probably more like a, a beach at the moment isn't it chuck um, so yeah, yeah. That's, I think that's a very good idea. Yeah, absolutely. They, you know, they could use the firepower. The other thing is that your your landing it's 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 tons it's tons of material that uh, this company sized outfit is going to need, and you also want to get it out of transport mode and into tactical mode as soon as possible, and that obviously means means vehicles. And, uh, you know, if you're going to put something on the pontoon section, do you want a truck or do you want an infantry fighting vehicle? And then if you're actually uh, got the sort of apparatus that could get an infantry fighting vehicle across, a tank is heavier, but that's a matter of uh, buoyancy. And uh, why wouldn't you do that? So the one thing I can say, wheeled vehicles are across, infantry fighting vehicles, uh, armor 
I don't know yet, but uh, I think the Russians will probably be the second people to know <laughs> if there is armor that has gotten across. I, I, there's one thing that struck me about the uh, Ma Major T, the uh, not Major Tom, no, um, at the uh, that he's probably outlined where those minefields are, so that gives them a relatively easy path out of that area as well, doesn't it? If you're gonna, if you have those vehicles, it would make more sense that you've uh, that uh, that you've got uh, the, those vehicles across at the same time. Yeah, no, it's the it's the Vulitaya Road uh, is the only road south. There's another there's another road maybe 400 uh, meters to the east of it that goes directly to the to the M14 highway. But there are only two roads out of the town, folks. And heretofore, I don't think the Russians mind the only road that they had going in there. Uh, I would assume that it's mined now, but there just aren't that many ways ways out of here. Uh, I do know that uh, Ukraine has been keeping up pretty steady uh, artillery fire on the only Russian lines of communication and supply. So this is, you know, th this was a very well thought out operation. This was a they they. They picked this place specifically. Uh, there were some people saying, well, look, it's ridiculous that they landed on this marshy island. Uh, you know what? It, it wasn't as good as landing uh, on an already prepared uh, asphalt highway, but that's not what river crossings do, right? You don't, there, there is no truly wonderful, truly suitable crossing place uh, between Kherson and Nova Harkova. It is a marshy riverine environment, but uh, but again, Ukraine has fought and taken and exploited gains on these river river islands. We know that finding a fact. We also know finding a fact there is a company sized or better Ukrainian uh, tactical element in Kozachi Lahari. Uh, ergo. They are supplied, and uh, it is not by by motorboats. So, again, we'll see. We'll see. I think it's. Uh, I think this is a great development. Well, and it just goes to show what an idiot I am, uh, Chuck, because uh, I marked this area out over a year ago as being a possible crossing point if the Russians wanted to escape. But what do I know? <laughs> Well, the other thing you you also spotted a, a a pontoon in this vicinity a couple of months ago. Do you remember that? I do. Yep, you were. You know what? You you spotted. I'm I'm telling you right now, folks. David picked this out a couple of months ago, uh, and it is on a. Uh, let's just say it's in a it's in a tactically relevant position to the present crossing. Uh, Another question about where are the pontoons? Uh, look at all these bios around here. And uh, the, the pontoon spans are dispersed. They are camouflaged. And uh, I would also suggest to some OSINT operators that one of the best ways to move a pontoon section is by water. And uh, if you look around, there is a lot of water here. 
and not just the Dnipro River, but these little tributaries and byways and canals and ponds are exactly the places these pontoons would deploy from and return to after uh, a night's work of crossing. So here we go. So I'll, I think we're in the I think we're in the pocket, David. I think so. So to Cornelius and then back to G-Man. Cornelius. Cornelius, if you are oh, with yeah. us. It took me by surprise. <laughs> I had to run across the garage. Um, <laughs> I know. Yeah. Me too, Cornelius. That happens to me too. <laughs> anyway. Welcome uh, aboard. I know. Kherson, uh, 60 kilometers, about 50 or 60 kilometers southeast. Uh, I picked up a tw- well, series of tweets about an S300 battery that got hammered by uh, uh, HIMARS. Uh, and I don't know if that was recent or not. So you, you, you may know, oh, it happened in the past, it's old news. But if it happened quite recently, because you know those videos come out and they're, they're fairly well produced, they got a bit of background music. Yeah, they've been they've been in the can for a while, um, but if this one's fairly recent, uh, will that have an effect on the situation there? A full S three hundred battery. Yeah, a- absolutely. I'm glad you brought that up too. It, uh, uh, you know, sometimes those things drop on the internet and they are not recent. Uh, but uh, I looked at that. I am pretty sure that that happened within the last 48 to 36 to 48 hours. And uh, if I'm wrong, it has been exquisitely supported by Ukrainian information warfare uh, promulgations because that that information is triangulated by reports uh, from the Ukrainian general staff. Uh, I'd also say this, the thing to look for Tomorrow morning, folks, are deep strikes into Crimea because generally uh, when S-300 batteries are interdicted south of Kherson, that is an immediate predicate to uh, deeper strikes into Crimea. I'm not giving anything away to our Russian listening guests because as much as they would like to shoot down incoming storm shadows and shoot down the Ukrainian strike aircraft that are delivering them, they have three smoking craters where S-300 batteries used to be. And it was, if you have seen the footage, uh, and if you haven't, you can you can look it up. Uh, th- this, this whole event was filmed by Ukrainian uh, uh, drones. What's interesting to me is uh, I was looking at the, at the at the drone coverage itself, we're looking at uh, hovering drones. Uh, And that means that uh, Ukraine has got some machines operating that have some pretty considerable uh, capabilities. Generally, if you're going to be, if you're dealing with a, you know, a deep surveillance uh, mission, it's going to be a fixed wing UAV. Uh, But, you know, the, these were hovering. Uh, one thing I'd also suggest to our Russian listening guests, because I always enjoy talking to them when we're on tonight, is maybe these these uh, UAVs that were put up to support this S-300 strike strikes because they took out multiple 
transport, erection, and launching uh, vehicles, that uh, perhaps this strike was supported in its reconnaissance and filming efforts by deeply inserted special operations forces and partisans, which is what I suspect, because the the you know vertical takeoff and landing drones uh, generally they don't have the longer range, right? Because their lift is provided by rotary, uh, you know, they're, they're rotary powered. So that means they have constantly got to burn uh, energy to stay aloft and they burn the most energy in a hover. So I, I'm thinking these targets were scouted and, uh, you know, the firing solutions were delivered by partisans, but more likely by deeply inserted SOF which should alarm uh, the Russians. Uh, so back to G-Man, then on to Jonathan, and then a couple of final questions about Kherson. G-Man. Thanks. Uh, just a couple of thoughts I had. Um, armor, I uh, suspected that there was, was going to be armor across. Um, and you mentioned IFVs and, and possibly tanks. And the other thing I thought of was Gephardt's and I'm not sure if the Gephard, obviously it's an the air asset, but I always remember how it's a German vehicle, and I always remember how the Germans um, used the air weapons in an anti-personnel role quite frequently to great effect in the Second World War. And I'm wondering, you know, would there be value, in, be, obviously there would be value in having the Gephard against any uh, Russian drone that they sent up um, or other um, anti-air targets um, helicopters but they also would be useful in a, in a ground-to-ground role too I think uh, and then the other question was there's, um, there was some uh, footage uh, came about um, photographs really of some really large coffins going onto a C-17, two really large coffins which looked very like Reaper um, storage um, units. And uh, it got me thinking, is the uh, United States sending some Reaper drones to Ukraine? Uh, anyway, that's two thoughts, um, observations for you to consider. Thank you. Yeah, good good points. I- I don't know uh, if they'd want to put a Gephard across the river. They might. And uh, the Gephards, uh, of course, they're, they're two autocannons, radar-guided autocannons, uh, considered short-range air defense, extremely effective, uh, especially uh, against uh, Shahids. They are, they are the Shahid killer. Uh, one of the problems with getting the Gephardt into service for quite a long time, and as a Swiss-American, I'm embarrassed to uh, say this, was resistance from Switzerland, who had a cartel uh, stranglehold on the uh, proximity-fused uh, anti-aircraft shells that went with the Gephardt. Uh, the Gephardt has the ability to change uh, the sort of ammunition it fires uh, within the within the uh, vehicle itself, you can essentially throw a switch, and you can fire anti-personnel uh, ammunition for it to use in a direct fire fire support mission 
uh, you know, shooting horizontally across the ground. And then you can flick a switch and it fires uh, proximity fused ammunition, which works. This was invented in the 30s. It's uh, it's a your bullet has a little radar receiver in it and uh, you fire it and it goes out of the out of the gun barrel. It arms itself. There's an explosive in the shell. And as long as the radar receiver in the shell, which, of course, is very small, as long as it is reading information that tells it it is closing on the target, it will remain impact fused. But as soon as its radar receiver says it is departing from the target, it will explode. So therefore, uh, nothing really misses. The shell will detonate uh, when it's determined that it isn't going to get any closer to the target. It'll detonate, and until that time, it'll hit it and uh, hit to kill. Uh, I, I, I think the guys across the river would love to have one of those, but I don't think uh, the situation is well-developed enough right now to send one across, and especially in those direct fire missions, uh, there are other... Uh, dare I say, more expendable vehicles that could be put across. Regarding the C-17 uh, and uh, the aluminum cases, yeah, that that is completely possible. Um, uh, there are a number of more capable U.S. drones that are being deployed, uh, notably the Puma. Uh, its its skill is that it is it is extremely quiet, uh, but. We may we may see an upgrade in the in the UAVs available to Ukraine. So sharp eye on that C seventeen footage, and I'll be looking for that too. Uh, thank you, G man. Uh, Jonathan, go ahead, please. Um, thank you, Mr. Brewer. Um, my name is Jonathan Sims. Uh, I I'm confused with um, just some of the geography, I guess, of Ukraine. It seems like. Um, there are other places in Ukraine that are, would take a higher priority uh, with recapture, but I don't know if the strategy is to convince Russia to move out or it's just simply to organize strategies that actually capture the territories and whether the um, Ukrainians and Russians in those territories will relinquish in um, the way that the the peace the peace plan that's been released. Um, yeah, so, so Jonathan. I, I don't think that, uh, especially here uh, at the, the crossing in Kozachi Lahari, uh, you are talking about a, a mission to recapture. Uh, listen to Chuck for a moment uh, more here uh, about what the Ukrainian mission crossing the Dnipro south of Kherson might be. It is to draw Russian forces from other points on the line of engagement and create Russian weak points, which Ukraine can also exploit. Is, is that roughly right, Chuck? Yeah, I, I, I think so at this, at this place and uh, in these places. Because what, you know, what we've been talking about, and I, I mentioned it just at the, at the top of the show, uh, it, the, these tactical movements have already had uh, one extremely desirable ref, uh, effect, uh, Russia is now moving brigades of naval infantry uh, into this sort of coffin corner, which is, uh, you know, bound by the Dnipro in the north, uh, 
uh, everything west of the M-18 highway and north of, of uh, Crimea. And it is uh, whether or not Ukraine is going to explode, exploit these two crossing places, you know, frankly, I, I don't think they are. I mean, I'm, I could absolutely be wrong. But, and we, we've, we talked about this earlier, even before uh, Kozachi Lahari, uh, that R- Russia has to take every Ukrainian crossing of the Dnipro. They have to take it seriously. And they're going to have to reposition their forces accordingly. And because there are, of course, only finite Russian forces and resources in Ukraine, they have got to take them uh, from somewhere. And that means they're going to weaken their line somewhere to strengthen it, quite frankly, and, and speaking really frankly, I think it's very unlikely that Ukraine is going to bust a move across the Dnipro in the vicinity of Kherson. But that's just me talking out of my hat. Ukraine is positioned in such a manner that should a breakthrough, should favorable circumstances eventuate either at the Anatovsky bridge or here at Kozachi Lahari, they'll be ready to move on it. Uh, they'll be ready to move on it. So Russia has to fight here. And, you know, when we're talking about putting 10,000 rifles into this, this area of operations that we're talking about, that isn't even the appropriate force if I were a Russian general commanding here, I need 25,000 guys, combatants. And that means, you know, it's it's five to one on the support uh, thing. And even though Russia is strangling down its its logistics and, and combat support uh, units and combing them for every trigger puller they can find, uh, that too weakens their you know, weakens their their combat effectiveness of the guys at the top. So even this is, if this is simply, uh, uh, you know, as a military term of art, a demonstration means something that is a little different from this. But if it is simply to attract Russian attention south of the Dnipro, then it's already succeeded. And the more they keep this up and the more raids that are carried on and you know, saying what I just said, I think there will be other crossing points, but I don't know if Ukraine is ready to push the button on them right now, but I do know it's achieving at least one of their desired ends, and that is the diversion of Russian resources and personnel. I, I think over the next uh, six to 10 weeks, uh, as the uh, summer wears away and, and fall comes upon us, we're going to see Russia pretty much in the position of a kid with a sandcastle on the beach with the tide coming in. Uh, And you remember what it was like. Uh, The waves would eat away at at one rampart. You'd try to reinforce it. But eventually, that sandcastle collapsed in the high tide and just uh, collapsed right into the rest of the beach. That's the position the Russians are going to be in pretty soon, I think, Chuck. Uh, Let's go to Fletch. Uh, go ahead. Evening, Alan. Evening, Chuck. Um, yeah, just supporting fires to your hypothesis here, Chuck. Um, now, I've been looking into how this has been playing out, you know, certainly since the, um, the, main, the main crossing or the main raid 
um, because they'd already had about 50 or 60 guys over there. But why, why did they do this raid? And, and it's how you sort of approached it last Thursday. Now, now a few things happened, which was quite interesting. Um, now, the, the raid occurred, which was, a, um, which was um, they got hold of Russian comms. Um, and they deceived the Russians to coming over. And then it, it, whatever happened, happened. They got hold of the guy. They did take some losses there, unfortunately. Um, um, but that was the nature of the game. Because um, prior to that, um, the Russians had withdrew their BDV brigade and put it over to the Saparisha front. So when the BDV were withdrawn... Um, to support the um, the Saparicha front. Um, very shortly after that raid occurred, um, so the timing was perfect because um, the Russians felt more secure. But the raid occurred, then the Russians started to feel insecure because a few days later, the Russians um, th their telegram channels were alight, where they spotted armor moving towards Kherson. Um, now. If they're, if they're highlighting this as a problem, then woe and behold, they start transferring troops back to Kherson. So your backwards and forwards of moving the troops like you always cover on your, on your spots seems to hit the point there because they are going backwards and forwards. They, they, they remove one brigade and they transfer more in. Um, so, you know, what Ukraine is doing is a very... Um, a bit of a deception game here by the by the looks of it, but in 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 considering that, um, I'm also factoring in. Now you mentioned the S300 battery. Now that that's approximately around seventy oddish kilometres from the front line. Um, now we know um, that the normal uh, distance for high Mars is roughly eighty kilometres. You know, but it can go up to 90. You know, we can normally expect a 90 out of U.S. material. It goes more than what it does. So it's a bit of a shoot and scoop mission. And I do agree with you there. There are some deeply inserted special operation forces because I, I mentioned about a week or so ago, Chuck, about, the, you know, the, the amount of special forces being trained in the U.K., and they're also been training um, with the Marines as well, with 4-2 and 4-7 Commando, um, training their raiding parties. So all of this is tying into this particular area. Um, now, if we've seen um, one um, special forces group identifying, because I do agree, um, none of the drones can reach that particular distance and, and remain there because of battery life. Although Ukraine have got new drones coming on board now, so it could have been one of them. But I am erring towards what you say, special forces there. And, and they do seem to be targeting that area around Crimea. So are you still of the opinion, bearing in mind, there could be 2,000 special forces and um, SBS trained and also 900 Marines trained um, who are all geared to river crossings. You know, what's your opinion on that amount of troops? Because they can cause a lot of havoc and confusion in this area, couldn't they, Chuck? Yeah, absolutely. We had General Budinov uh, saying, you know, a lot of people thought optimistically that, that we're going to Crimea. 
And, you know, I, I love trying to figure out what General Budinov is actually saying. He is that stone-faced, uh, inscrutable head of uh, Ukrainian intelligence. And, I, Fletch, I absolutely agree with you. You know, these are the sort of things you, you dissect with this hovering drone. And, you know, there isn't a hovering drone that we know of. Uh, well, actually, you know, I got to take that back. But it was much more likely to me that this was a, 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 a an operation against these S-300s that had a special forces component. And a, a couple of times you can remember when uh, Doug London, the former CIA station chief, was on. And uh, we talked sometimes about a risk to reward, right, and uh, and risking certain assets. Uh, do you really want to put a, a special force operating 60 or 70 kilometers behind enemy lines well you know they're capable of doing it and especially guys trained by royal marine commandos and the sbs uh they've got the skill sets to do that so what's the reward well taking out three s300 missile batteries in one strike is definitely worth it and fletch is also right uh you're going to have to put a high mars battery in some degree of risk to move it close enough, and it would have to be kind of close to the Dnipro River, move it close enough so it was in a position and ready to hit these S-300 batteries. So there's another little thing in war, I like to say, never, never fight a war with people who are going to bring their own music, right? So this operation against those S-300 batteries was so well planned, they literally positioned drones in position to film the strike as it went down and within say as far as i can figure out 12 to 14 16 hours later they had it posted up on uh, the internet with rock music blaring so there were all sorts of components to this operation M moving the high mars battery into proximity which caught you know you need to you need to conceal that movement you, you need to make sure that uh, you're not placing that very valuable uh, weapon in, uh, you know, where the enemy can get at it. You've got a special forces team you had to uh, insert. They have to infiltrate into proximity of this S S-300 battery. They had to deploy their drones. And after the strike, when the hornet's nest is stirred up, you have to get them out. Uh, everything you see in modern warfare, Folks, and Fletch, you'll agree there's an electronic warfare component as well. And uh, you are literally hitting one of Russia's more capable surface-to-air missile air defense uh, assets, and you're taking it out. And you have to suppress their uh, ability because, look, they, at least on paper, might have a fighting chance to take out an incoming HIMARS round. But that didn't happen. What do you are? Are you with me, Fletch? Am I barking up a tree, or uh, you think we're close here? No, exactly, Chuck. Um, you see, while I'm thinking of now, Zelensky has an asset of you know near enough to three thousand trained guys for river crossings, and how is he going to use them? You know, um, they, they, they're obviously good at spotting. 
you know, you can have some deep penetration. I would imagine we'll see a few more deep, deep strikes with, with drone footage on it. So that's the first one that we've had proper footage of an S-300 battery that deep into Russian territory. Because um, working out on the distance, it was 73 kilometers near enough, 74 um, from from the front line. So, uh, you know, let's put it back another six kilometers from the front line. So we're looking at the 80 kilometer mark. Um, I, I think that with 2000 guys who have been trained specifically for this, and they've also been trained on 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 the anti-tank weapons as well, Chuck. You know, so it, it's not just about, um, you, you know, crossing the river. They're all prepared to do something. And whether they use it on this area or it's just going to be, um, you know, doing minor raids all along the front. So the Russians are going up and down and, and they get exhausted. Um, but having 2000 guys trained in this area, Chuck, that's an asset that surely has to be used at some stage fully. You are right. And, and folks, I won't go into how many Navy SEALs there are, but let me just say this. If you have 3,000 operators trained to SBS and Royal Marine standards, you have a considerable force. You have got a big, sharp tool. And uh, these are the kind of raids that they were born for. This is the kind of stuff that, you know, special work. These, these are the kind of missions as a young SEAL being trained. These were exactly the targets we operated against. Uh, deeply positioned uh, hostile air defense sites, sophisticated air defense sites, because they're, the, they're like the key to everything. But bear in mind, let's see what happens in Crimea tomorrow, because almost without fail when we get these s300s hit in this vicinity you know there is a window of opportunity to strike crimea and ukraine it seldom passes it up uh to scott and then back to david i wanted to support what one of your major points chuck and alan's excellent illustration of sandcastles and high tides uh, supplemented by some information that I've read in the last couple of days, which is that Russia is down to either zero or one unit left in reserve on the whole battlefront. And it's, it makes credible the statistic or fact you mentioned earlier about the unit coming from Zaporizhia down to the Kherson front. Which makes me think that, um, you know, a little bit more logistics, a little bit more attrition. And, uh, you know, it, it won't be late autumn before we see the Ukrainians finding a weak spot as the Russians are racing between, you know, collapsing lines <laughs> across the battle space. Yeah, and, you know, we, we talk about the line of contact moving forward and back, you know, like a wave coming up and going uh, back and forth on the beach. Uh, you know, another, another thing to remember is when you're moving forces in land warfare and they go from point A uh, to point B, you, you never get 
to your destination with everything you left with. Not, not even in peacetime, not even in an administrative move. You're always going to lose a couple of vehicles, guys get lost, all, all of those things. Uh, and in combat, that the, those, those problems and their consequences are, are magnified, right? You, you lose, uh, you're losing links in a chain. And when you get there, uh, you know, first of all, you're doing an administrative move, uh, in peacetime. Uh, that's one thing. And if you're an American and you drive around often on the weekends, you'll see national guard troops on the highway, right? What are they doing that for? They're just driving their vehicle around vehicles. Yeah, they are. They're, they're practicing moving uh, in a convoy. They're practicing uh, going, setting out, and all arriving in good time, on time, uh, to their, you know, to their destination. That sounds real easy, but, but it isn't. When vehicles break down, run out of gas, get flat tires, uh, get diverted, roads are closed, et cetera, et cetera. Now, you imagine a movement like that taking place uh, open to artillery fire of the enemy, open to observation, uh, getting from point A to point B and getting to point B and going right into contact with the enemy. Uh, so just moving the Russian forces around the battlefield, enticing them to move, forcing them to move, uh, encouraging them to move, presenting them with opportunities that they think they have, uh, this is what we talk about Ukraine thus far and for the last, you know, over the summer, dictating the pace and place of battle. And, and they truly are. And as we move to some other locations here uh, on, the, on the battle space tonight, you'll see Ukraine has picked these, these points of contact out. And very often... They are, there's something in common with every, almost every place Ukraine is fighting now on the battlefield. They have one line of communication and supply for Russia to use to supply its forces in contact with Ukraine. And that makes their forces and, you know, it, their forces hang by a thread. They hang by one line of communication and supply. Uh, and we've seen Ukraine essentially sparingly, but more and more beginning to use improved conventional munitions, cluster munitions, against these channelized lines of communication and supply. And remember I talk about the National Guard guys driving around on the freeway on the weekend? Well, imagine those guys driving around on that freeway and they get the first 10 vehicles get cluster bombed. There's only one road. Where do the other vehicles go? Well, they they put it in park and they wait and then they get hit by artillery. So these little things, all of these little mosaics, all these little pieces, they all get together and they make things harder on the Russians. And that's good. So to David, to G-Man, to Brian, and then on to the next map up in the nest, it will be or Kiev. Oh, uh, thank you very much. Yes, and uh, it's, 
it suddenly occurred to me, I was looking at some messages. I went, oh, I wonder if Chuck knew about that. Had you seen the uh, uh, the comments? Uh, it was in uh, Russian Telegram about how um, uh, they uh, were reporting that um, just, in fact, the other side of Aleshki, uh, the, uh, um, of Aleshki San, sorry, uh, the, uh, the, they reported um, Ukrainians in Russian clothes. Of course, there would not be Ukrainians in Russian clothes, but it could it, it could have been Russians just shooting at each other. Did you see that one though? That was a, it. Was just one of those things. I went, oh, no, I didn't see that. But uh, that's good. I'm glad they are. Well, well there was another case. Of, you know, the the Russians were just had an intramural firefight. Uh, was it yesterday? It was a, a scuffle that turned into a fight, that turned into a stabbing, that turned onto a squad-on-squad engagement that killed 20 Russian soldiers. I mean, it's, it's as we say, that's, 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 that's more than just a liberty incident, you know what I mean? <laughs> that's more than some a little bit of fisticuffs, isn't it? And what, what I found was brilliant about the, uh, uh, the, uh, the bit where they were saying the Ukrainians addressed as Russians is because it came with a big warning do not trust anyone, at which point I was going, this is absolutely wonderful. The, the, the Ukrainians could be thinking, oh, I wish they, they're probably wishing they could get some, 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 some info like that into Russian Telegram on a regular, regular basis, right? So you've got everyone, all the Russians running around going, I cannot trust anyone at this moment in time. Let's just shoot anything that's in a Russian uniform. That, you know... At- and we talk about the the waste of Russian resources, right? So, in the rear, they're they're, they're going to be securing everything. They're going to be burning gas on security patrols. They're going to have people up all night. There, it, it, it's wonderful. And and you're right. You increase their paranoia. There's no place now. They think there's no place safe. Right. It challenge in password. And how many how many red on red shooting incidents are there going to be now? So I, I didn't see that, David, but thank you for bringing that up. And I'll definitely look into that. But uh, I wonder what Russian clothing is. Actually, does that mean Russian uniforms carrying Russian equipment, Russian load bearing equipment? And, uh, well, that's the question, is it? What is it, right? Wearing a special sort of trainer, uh, you know? <laughs> <Who knows>? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Track suits, right? Like your your basic gobnik, you know? I don't know. Or, or looking slovenly. I think that's the only way you could convince a Russian that you're a Russian. Uh, G-Man and Brian. Yeah, um, Chuck, um, I just saw... Something was just uh, scrolling through Telegram there on the Warriors Ukrainian um, channel, and I, I saw a map that looked like yours, um, and it's basically, it's basically your Kherson uh, image. I just put it into the nest. I think be taken down, but um, they say that uh, imitation is the best form of flattery. So this is uh, this is uh, this is good uh, good flattery for you. So, G-Man, you found this first tweet in the nest on a Telegram channel? Yeah. Yeah. I've added a few bits and pieces of the Ukraine must win and stop genocide and the Maria report but, and Chuck's thing. But, yeah, that was on the Telegram channel with that image. Well, 
oh, that's good. I'll have to put a little extra software in my maps, <laughs> if you know what I'm saying. No. So uh, that'll be good. But it's a Ukrainian Telegram channel. So, yeah. In that case, I'll take the extra software off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just, just a note to our Russian listening guests. Uh, thanks, P-Man. Uh, Brian, go ahead, please. Hey, Chuck. Uh, good to talk to you again. Hope you're doing well. Uh, hey, Brian. Yeah. I'm doing well, sir. Thanks for coming up. Yeah, no problem. Um, so I heard it posited on the net. That's why I say I heard it. I saw it um, on my phone where, you know, someone whose opinion I respect says, says that, um, you know, pretty soon we're going to be in a situation where Ukraine's going to have to start figuring out where they want to hunker down when the mud season arrives in the fall, um, uh, where they want to have defensive, defensible positions uh, because of the conditions due to the weather are, are going to affect their ability to, to uh, liberate territory. But when I heard that narrative, it got to me thinking, like, okay, so Ukraine is on the uh, clock, but Russia is always on the clock. Uh, in terms of their burn rate, in terms of equipment being smoked, um, artillery being degraded, and attrited, and their port and their, their manpower being attrited. So, where do you fall if you're if you're advising if you're advising the the Ukrainian general staff and you're you're, you're you've got an eye on the calendar? Are we overstating this um, emphasis? This, this sort of clock ticking. Um, where do you fall on this, and how? What's the sense? Obviously, we all want to have a sense of urgency in terms of liberating territory, but uh, where do you fall in that in regards to the calendar and the meteorological and the, um, the weather conditions uh, going forward in the coming months? Yeah, I think, uh, I again, never underestimate your enemy, never turn your back on your enemy. Uh, but it, it, were I a Ukrainian commander, I I would I, I wouldn't lose sight of the fact that Russia has not been able to put together any large offensive moves of its own. Uh, there was a multi tens of thousands repositioning of Russian forces up towards Kupiansk. They they haven't been able to to move the needle. Uh, same thing at Kremena. Five, in some cases, 10 to 1 superiority. They haven't gotten to Torsky. Uh, I wouldn't so much worry about, uh, well, I don't want to say this. I would certainly want to take prudent steps to hold on to all the territory that, that I had liberated. But I think we're still in the, you know, there are, there are weeks, six, eight weeks maybe, uh, left in the summer campaigning uh, season. U Ukraine has been, you know, they've been very cagey with the lives of their troops. Uh, Russian commanders squad squander them, you know. Manpower is a consumable to a Russian commander. It has never been to a Ukrainian commander. And they take such meticulous care to, to prepare the battle space. Uh, they are very circumspect in, in 
in picking positions uh, to fight. And it is Ukraine all, almost in every case that is picking uh, the locations of combat. And Russia is having to respond to that. So it, use a tennis analogy, it's Ukraine that's running Ukraine around the, I mean, it's Ukraine that's running Russia around the court, right? And the more you're scrambling after a ball yourself, the very, you're much less likely to be able to put one away. Uh, and that, and that I, I think is still going on. Uh, there, we're, we're, we're going to Archive right now and we'll talk about, uh, this is one of the positions where Ukraine might be looking at exactly those circumstances that you're talking about. Uh, we're, we're going to be talking about Robotny and specifically what's happened there in the last 12 hours. This, this is a candidate location for Ukraine to, to throw a big punch. Uh, we're, we're, and I say that for a bunch of reasons, and we'll go into them in a minute, but this is not very far from Tokmak. Uh, Tokmak is a gateway position uh, for moving on Melitopol. Uh, so we'll have to see, but I don't, you know, I, I don't see Ukraine at this point really putting a lot of plan into, into static defense. Uh, I, I anticipate a slight decrease in military operations per force during the mud season, but I also see Ukraine, uh, you know, they're going to continue pushing, pushing operations forward and, uh, uh, only, uh, you know, the wet part of fall is going to slow that down. They're going to keep, they're going to keep going. I, I anticipate winter offensive operations as well. So the Orkiv, uh, Robotnya, uh, map is third in the nest. And I was immediately struck, Chuck, by the intensity, uh, of Ukrainian fire missions, including, uh, two, uh, air missions uh, right down around Robotnya. Yeah, th this is a place uh, really to keep your eye on. Um, <laughs> things move so fast today. I can't remember if I even put one up in the morning. Uh, the, the battle space we're looking at, folks, if you don't have a map, you don't really need one. I'll give you the play-by-play. -play. Uh, south of Orkiv, uh, the TO815 highway heads up pretty much directly south. It is to the western portion of a sort of large rectangular salient uh, that Ukraine has bitten out of the Russian line. It goes uh, from Novo Andrivka uh, south to Robotny, then east to Verbove, and up again there uh, back to the H08 highway uh, Novo Fedorivka. Uh, what's happened in the last 12 hours is Ukrainian forces who have been engaged uh, to the northeast of Robotny, they have uh, extended, uh, first of all, they've consolidated control over the northeast section of the village, and they have advanced uh, from the eastern, uh, from the western portion, south, uh, and they have advanced uh, from the east, attacking uh, to the southwest. Uh, 
Uh, Ukraine carried out seven uh, aviation strike missions in the last 24 hours. At least two of them were uh, engaged in Robotny. Uh, Ukraine has also uh, have been shelling the hell out of Russian forces uh, who are advancing, uh, sending reinforcements into Robotny. They have to go up the T0408 highway. So uh, a, as we see in Velika Nova, Novosilka, which we will go to uh, likely next, you've got a north-south highway that is for both sides, it is the line of communication and supply. For both sides, it is the battle space itself. Uh, like I said earlier, this highway is a military necessity and a military objective for both sides. But the Russian forces are getting worn down here. They've been fighting pretty heavily in Robotny for a long time. They've made several attempts, uh, none recently, They've met several attempts attacking from the West to try to cut the TO408 highway. Uh, they failed. Within the last two weeks, uh, they have also tried to simultaneously hit the East and West uh, uh, lines of, of this salient to close it off, but they, they haven't been able to do it. Uh, what time is it? It's... Uh, is about 3.15 in the morning there. I am certain the fight's going on right now. The last information I had uh, was that Ukraine had advanced on both sides of, of the TO408 uh, and that they are pressing towards uh, Novo Provkopka. And uh, <laughs> I didn't say that. Novo Provkopkivka. Uh, I think that's the next stop. Uh, look tomorrow morning. This will probably be the first map I put up tomorrow morning, and uh, and we'll see. But things things are looking promising here in heavy fighting. So there's a lot of open territory here uh, as you as you look south. Uh, uh, open fields, farm fields, not a lot of forest, uh, not a lot of high ground that I can make out anywhere, Chuck. How does that? Uh, uh, shape the battle that's, that's coming here going down the TO408 highway. Yeah, there, there's a little uh, high ground to the north uh, east of Robotny, uh, which Ukraine uh, held on to. I guess they got there about two weeks ago, 16 days ago. Uh, they had a really costly advance, uh, very hard fought. They lost, this was, this was two weeks ago, uh, but they lost uh, five Bradleys in an advance into the minefields there. Uh, at least three or four of those vehicles were recovered. Uh, again, it's one of the reasons you have a Bradley. It's an extremely survivable platform. Uh, but, you know, lots of pressure uh, on, on the Russians here. And... Uh, you you have kind of a rectilinear battle space, right? Everybody everybody needs the TO408 to supply their troops, to move them, uh, and that the road itself is is the objective. Uh, Robotny is only about 24 kilometers from from Tokmak. Uh, 
So as this battle space gets secured, uh, and and I think it is inevitable, the Ukrainians are going to push down this highway. They're going to be able to take Tokmak uh, under fire. Uh, right now, you know, Ukraine. Every morning, the local commander gets, uh, you know, he gets 20 targets, but he doesn't have the artillery resources to hit hit them all. I mean, they need ammunition. They need, first of all, you know, they need ammunition. They need more tubes. You know, they need more artillery pieces. God knows they need more HIMARS units. Uh, they need more 155-millimeter ammunition, both precision and non-precision. Non they need more... Uh, improved conventional munitions, meaning cluster. They need everything. Uh, so th this is one of those places, though, that uh, has been very, very well picked out. Uh, and uh, the Russians are engaged here, fixed here. But it doesn't mean that this is the only place that Ukraine is going to uh, put the knife. If you look to the West... Uh, I'm rather, uh, to the east, there is Verbove. Uh, and that is another location where Ukraine could strike a blow, uh, especially if the Russian forces are fixed at Robotny. Uh, the TO-408, it, it branched, there's another one, the TO-401, that south of Robotny branches off uh, to the northeast. Uh, that means that as Russian forces are approaching the zero line, uh, in order to get uh, to Verbove to, uh, you know, concentrate forces to meet any sort of pending Ukrainian attack, they have a really long line of line of communication. And we talk about this a lot. Ukraine has the interior lines in this case. Ukraine has a salient. Those are generally bad, but Ukraine has been able to hold on to it. And operating inside of that salient, they can more easily move their men and materiel around. So while the Russians are fixed in Robotny and they are fighting tooth and nail because they know the consequences of losing that little village, Verbove is just out there. And uh, Russia can't afford to turn its back on it. There's an O-series road, not even a highway, there in uh, Robotny. Uh, it's the 08 1450. And Russia's got to cover that as well. But what's interesting is it's, it's one or the other for that Russian asset, that Russian unit, that pallet of ammunition, uh, 20 kilometers south of, of Robotny, that Russian logistician has to make a choice. He either sends that gear on to Robotny or he sends it on a much longer trip to Verbove, which is not very far away. 15 kilometers away, at east and west, but it's got to go on a 30-mile, uh, 30, 40-kilometer, kilometer long trip to get to Verbove. So again, it's because Ukraine picked this, picked this situation. And when we get to uh, Velika Nova Silka, we'll see we're dealing with the same thing. One line of communication and supply and Ukraine is fighting it out there 
because they know it's going to be hard for Russia to supply. Uh, I also saw, Chuck, thinking logistically here, that that Poland had actually uh, sent mechanics uh, into Ukraine where they could work to repair things like these uh, Bradley fighting vehicles uh, closer to the line of engagement. In other words, uh, wounded armor, let's say, you know, damaged armor in the in the battle that doesn't have to be taken all the way back to Poland that to be repaired. And some of the repairs are are alike and can be accomplished right near the battlefield and sent right back into battle. Yeah, it's, you know, this sounds pretty obvious, but folks, you build a tank and it's built like a tank. You build an infantry firing vehicle and that's kind of built like a tank too. So they're, you, you know, they can be put out of action, but it's really difficult to destroy them. So getting them back into action is, you know, is possible. And there for a while, this was a couple of months ago, the, when, when Russia started uh, attacking Ukraine's uh, power grid, one of the things it did was that retarded Ukraine's ability to repair this armor and uh, put it back into, into the fight. Because the individual workshops were uh, unable to, you know, power their tools and stuff. So those are the sort of little things away from the battle space that makes so much difference. And the God, you know, God bless Poland. Uh, and again, you know, as you know, if you own a car, good mechanics don't grow on trees either. So getting those critical skills in and getting them closer to the battle space, God bless them. And, and the Poles have been magnificent during this entire war. They have graciously uh, opened their arms to uh, refugees. Uh, they, have, they have put themselves up in the donor lines. They have provided uh, men, material, uh, everything. And, uh, you know, they're an example and one of the best examples of the NATO nation supporting Ukraine. Uh, Scott, go ahead, then Fletch. Thanks, Alan. Chuck, I wanted to ask you about Verbove. Um, And you might have answered it by the verb tenses you used just a second ago, but you've got the forward edge of the line of engagement kind of drawn right through it. And the other maps I've seen... Andy Schneider's one of them. Um, I haven't seen Ukraine take Verbova yet. Do you know if they've got a piece of it, or what's what's the current status? I, you know, actually, I'm looking at the the map there. I think that is definitely uh, still in Russian hands. I'm going to have to correct that that map there and uh it's one of those kind of back and forth things but let me let me make sure i've got that uh i've got the best data there for you unfortunately there are some of the sources that i use widely uh widely recognized sources not going to throw them under the bus right now uh but let's say some of those some of their uh depictions of the zero line in some cases are a little bit uh aspirational let me say (laughs) so uh we'll have to check on that one for you Thanks, Chuck. I appreciate it. Uh, Fletch, go ahead. Hi, Chuck. Um, 
Yeah, it's a funny area, this one, I think, uh, Robertney, because um, while they're fixing a lot of Russians here, um, Ukraine do need to keep a force here, because while Tokmak and Militopol are two key areas, I don't think they're going to engage um, in the direct fights for these cities. But by fixing the troops here, um, they do have to protect Tokmak and Melitopol because they are very heavily fortified, as you're aware. Um, well, I'm looking at the tactics here. Now, Robotny, it could already be liberated. You know, that's the word I'm getting. Um, but wait for official confirmation. Because the tactics they've used here are very similar to what they used in Staromorovsky, um, where they're coming from the west and the east and, and through the north. Um, and they, they allow the Russians an exit through the southern area, and they hammer them normally with clusters, um, as we saw with the Eurasian, you know, uh, whatever. Um, now, when, when you move on to Velka Nova Sozlika, um, are you of the same opinion that they, there is still one really good axis to open? Because what I'm seeing, um, maybe the Ukrainians are releasing images for a purpose, but I've been seeing martyrs and challengers being released as in combat, you know, in combat positions. Now, I know um, we've had extra martyrs from Germany, um, and there's possibly we've had some extra challenges as well, because I know Ben Wallace did say that Ukrainians, they can have more if they want them. Well, I would imagine they would, would have asked them straight away, you know, more than the 14 that, that have been officially uh, released. But I'm looking at Robotny. I can't see them um, attacking Topmac. I believe they would more than likely encircle it if they can get to the sea. I mean, what's your opinion on that? Because Robotny is is one of the most heavily fortified axes, isn't it, to the Tokmak Milutopol area? Yeah, I mean, the Russians are, are definitely, they'd rather fight in Robotny than uh, anywhere down the line. Uh, it, you know, we, we've, we've talked hundreds of times about uh, Russia doesn't like to give up an inch of territory. They don't. Uh, they don't take uh, opportunities to to shorten their defensive lines. They don't take uh, what would be prudent and rational, uh, you know, steps. I mean, sometimes you can. You really do want to take two steps back uh, because you've got uh, you've got a more defensible position, or your positions will be much easier to supply. Or uh, you know you just won't be so open to getting pummeled by the uh, by the enemy, but R Russia never does that, and you know th there's a couple reasons why besides just you know bullheadedness, uh, they don't care how many people they lose, that that's never an issue for them, they don't see that there could be a secondary effect to that, like maybe your guys won't fight for you anymore. Uh, maybe your guys realize they're just getting killed uh, for no other reason except for the bullheadedness of of their commanders. But there there's something interesting here, and it's 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 off the map. But as the TO four zero eight heads to talk Mac, there is a large uh, geographical feature uh, that that will parallel the road. It's uh, 
it's it's like the almost a river gorge that is uh, to the west of Tokmak. And we we talked about this, uh, you know, much earlier before the, the before the salient uh, had been chewed out of uh, south of Orkiv, that that sort of river valley is go- is going to f- uh, figure into uh, into offensive operations, and Ukraine will have the choice. Uh, whoever positions their force on either side of that river valley will have a secure flank because it's very unlikely that you're going to get attacked. Let's say you are, let's say Ukraine comes down and they, they keep that river valley uh, on their left flank. It's very unlikely that Russia is going to be able to attack them from the East because you've got to go, like crossing, uh, you got to go up a hill, then you got to go down a hill, which is, you know, the enemy Ukraine is going to be able to shoot at that. And then you got to go across a valley floor. Then you've got to come up another steep, uh, you know, another ski, steep hillside. And the same thing should Ukraine come down to the east of that. Uh any Russian forces trying to attack from the West are presented with the same problem. Here's what I mean about Ukraine having that sort of flexible tactical uh, policy. They're going to look at where they have positioned Russian forces. That sounds weird. Where did Ukraine position Russian forces? By these series of attacks, for example... And we'll get there in a minute. Velik and, and Novosilka, uh, the Russians are advancing there uh, as well, and uh, R- Russia has to position its forces there. So the more Russian forces you could get to go to Velika Novosilka, uh, the more open your possibilities will be for southern advances out of Robotny. Now we're back to that gorge again. Which side do you want to go down? And that's going to, you know, Ukraine will make that decision based on Russian force postures uh, south of the zero line that they are influencing right now. Uh, UK intelligence just confirmed that Russia is positioning forces now south of Kherson all comes back to that gorge. It comes back to Novos, no, Velika Novosilka. It comes back to Robotny. All of those Russian naval infantry forces that are going south of Kherson right now, they're not going to be able to help you out in Robotny. They're not going to be able to help you out in Velika Novosilka, and they're not going to be there to counterattack any Russian breakthrough heading for, I mean, Ukrainian breakthrough, heading for uh, uh, Tokmak. All of this is is it comes together, uh, you know. It doesn't just come together because I'm talking about it on the microphone. These are conditions uh, that that Ukraine has set. Uh, Russia is reactive, right? They're chasing the ball around the court. They're getting run around the court, and Ukraine is setting them up. And Ukraine is going to use geography as it as it always has. Just the way it uses the Dnipro, just the way it uses the the swampland uh, 
that that cuts off uh, Crimea. And the next big piece of terrain we're going to see is that river valley. So if you get uh, go to opentopomap.org, you can get some really decent topographic representations of this battle space that we're talking about and uh, pick out the highways. And I think you'll see. I think uh, I think you'll see what I'm talking about. Alex, thanks, Chuck. Uh, big Dog Keeper, you're next. Go ahead. Hey, great. Thanks a lot. Um, just uh, to back up just slightly, uh, when you were talking about HIMARS being uh, uh, in the Kherson region and uh, and talking about uh, Gepards at the time, I wouldn't uh, be surprised to find that Gepards in proximity to the HIMARS uh, as a kind of close support. Um, however, not going to be used uh, in a direct fire mode at all. Um, however, uh, talking about armor, uh, use of armor in, in these uh, situations. I, I got the feeling it's uh, it's going to be an infantry game with uh, IFVs uh, for some time yet to come until we, we you know, open up the battle space a bit. And uh, that's just my comment. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think what we were, I think what I was trying to say, it was a, it was a question about whether or not they'd put Gepards across the, uh, uh, the Dnipro there uh, at the Cossack camp. Yeah, I would say absolutely not. Uh, uh, absolutely yeah, I, not. That, Those are too valuable yeah. and they're too few and far between. Uh, they're better off uh, doing Harmar's uh, close support and protection uh, and uh, other uh, other critical infrastructure. I, I agree with your considered professional opinion, sir. <laughs> That's what I think too. It's just it's too valuable, and if you're, especially if you're going to just use it in a direct fire capacity, then I wouldn't risk it either. It's they're too few and uh, too critical a piece of gear. But again, we are talking about a Ukrainian military that has no surplus of of equipment available to them anywhere. Uh, and why does that make a difference? As Chuck has talked about earlier tonight, you have to make choices that you want to be able to uh to do everything but you have a short list you have to choose from uh this might be uh counter battery fire it might be deep strikes with high mars because ukraine doesn't have enough or everything uh, of what it needs they do have to make tough decisions i guess at those morning meetings chuck uh, what is the fire mission going to be today? What are the most lucrative targets we know about and can hit? Yeah, it's uh, I, and we we continue to see uh, Ukrainian success in counter battery fire, uh, and that is you know shooting at the enemy's guns. And although Russia is nowhere close to running out of artillery tubes, they, they still have a tremendous uh, advantage there. You know, Ukraine is attriting just about 1% of Russian artillery daily. And, you know, and we've talked about this too. It's, it's not just a question of, uh, you know, cutting down the, the number of, uh, of Russian guns. The fewer they are on the ground, that that of course is is a desirable goal, but it it resonates beyond that. The fewer Russian guns there are, the harder they are to distribute them to critical places on the battlefield. 
Because remember, you don't have to be strong everywhere. You've got to be strong where you are attacking, attacking or defending. And uh, that's that's the advantage that Ukraine is going to continue to have for the rest of this war. They have the, they have the advantage in, in that Russian tactical battlefield intelligence is is worse than Ukraine. And Ukraine is able to move their forces and concentrate them at places on the battlefield and achieve measures of tactical surprise that Russia hasn't been able to do and won't be able to do for the rest of this war. So that's, that's interesting. And, uh, you know, I, I go ahead, please. Um, I, I was just going to say, you take out an artillery placement, you're taking out artillery men too. So you have fewer and fewer, uh, artillery guys who know how to use, uh, the artillery that's left. Yeah. And I, we were talking about that, uh, that river Valley, uh, leading down to uh, Tokmak, it actually passes to the north uh, of Tokmak and comes down on the on the western uh, side. And uh, that's interesting, especially as you are looking at the developing situation in uh, Velika Novosilka. Ukraine has picked those two places. Remember, folks, and they so. Russia has to make those logistic, logistical choices 20 or 30 or 40, even 50 miles south of the zero line. And they're mutually exclusive, right? Here comes, a, here comes a pallet of artillery shells. The way the roads are designed, and it's no coincidence, south of both of these places, uh, that decision has to get made 30 or 40 miles in the rear. Uh, so, Chuck... Uh, on this Orkiv map, I have something of a an odd question, I think. But if you look at the at the north, at the very top of the map, there's this little flying wedge, uh, I'll call it, uh, of Ukrainian forces. So this is uh, north of Polohi, north of uh, Ivana Franca, uh, north of the Konka River, and the the rail line that connects Orkiv and Polohi. I see a lot of high ground north of Ivana Franca. I know all the intense fighting is happening between Robotny uh, and Verbove, but is there a Ukrainian opportunity up here in the north? Yeah, there, there, there absolutely is. And Russia is at the point where every, every time it wants to reinforce some point of contact, it has to draw people away uh there and there's another thing about verbove and i clarified the map position it is at least according to most of my sources uh in in the hands of ukraine uh it's and uh, unfortunately the inset goes over that but the lines of communication and supply to polohi would be cut if there is a breakthrough major uh ukrainian breakthrough at verbove so Ukraine is, is uh, dictating the, the pace and place of battle, right? So th there are avenues of approach north of Polohi. Uh, and there, there was, what was it? Uh, I don't know, two weeks ago, uh, there, were, there was fighting along the uh, T0815, which is the east-west highway 
it parallels the uh, H08 going into Pelohi. Uh, everywhere Russia wants to make a defensive stand, folks, those are guys not fighting in Velika Novoslika. They're, they're not manning the, the banks of the, uh, of the Dnipro River, and they are not slugging it out in Robotny. So th that's the genius of this, of, of this plan. Whenever people say, well, the, the, the counteroffensive isn't going, well, you know what? When, when you've got the enemy dancing all over the map, Right when you've got the enemy running hither and yon, trying to meet your attacks, when any one of them could be developed at any moment, right? When we get to the uh, Velika Novoslika map, we'll we'll talk about exactly how the Russians collapsed in in one of those battles, and it led to uh, a major and an ongoing breakthrough. So. Uh, you know, and it's it's funny. I I was talking to a civilian today, uh, civilian, a non a non. Well, actually, actually, listen to the show sometimes. They had that same sort of opinion. Well, I, I hear the offensive isn't really going very well. You know, I I said not going very well for who. You know, and explain some of the things that are going on in Bakhmut, some of the things that are going on in Kupiansk and and Kremena and. You know, you name these these points of contact, and you know, and then I reminded them, what is the Russian plan to win the war? What what's their knockout punch? Where where is their big summer offensive coming? And there is no answer because there isn't, folks. You know, they don't have a plan, and they can't execute these grand ideas. They cannot put together a combined arms offensive. And one of the reasons is increasingly suggested to me, they can't because they dare not lose that, right? It's one thing to dig in and fight the Ukrainians largely in a defensive posture. Even if you are the first guy to pull the trigger, in, in almost every case on the battlefield here, Russians are essentially on the defensive. We'll, we'll talk about the one... Uh, uh, the one exception to that rule when we get to back mood, but you'll see the results. Things yeah. are going okay. Yeah, things are going okay. Uh, don't, don't choose the metric of speed to measure success. And as Chuck says, if you're fighting not to lose, which is, this is what the Russians are doing, put yourself in, in any uh, competition you've ever had, whether it's a chess game, a football game, a basketball game, when you're fighting not to lose, you are increasing your chances of losing. So we're going to move on from Orkiv uh, uh, to uh, Velika Novosilka. Uh, it's the fourth tweet up in the nest. Uh, but just to leave you with this one thought about Orkiv, the salient between Robotny and uh, Verbove, it, yes, we're focused on it, but it's not the only area of opportunity for Ukraine on the Orkiv map. Uh, so we'll move on to Velika Novosilka, but first a question from Aaron. Um, just to put, I think what Chuck said is exactly right. It's going okay. Not good, not great, 
but just okay, which is probably better than bad. But I think it is a mixed bag where, from what I've heard, some of the officers in the Ukrainian army aren't all the best. They're, they're falling back on Russian doctrine all the way down to not wanting to hear good news. If they do hear bad news, they send that person that gave the bad news on suicide missions. And um, a lot of the problems that are in the Russian army are also in the Ukrainian army. So it's not all roses, um, but I, from what I've heard, the, the commanders in the south are nowhere near comparable to the, the commanders in the east. Um, and there are lots of cases At last, I'm losing you. to the Russian tactics and just being obliterated, you know, 40, 50 guys and everyone's either dead or injured. And then they sent in another meat wave because of the commanders. This isn't the enlisted men, not the men, but some of the command structure in the Ukrainian army is not um, roses, so to speak. And that some enlisted men are coming back with tactics and then being told, no, we don't do it that way. We do it this way, which is the Russian way even though they may have been NATO trained and so forth. But that's, that's not all negative because obviously there are some positives, but there is a balance to what's happening. And um, we sort of need to be uh, uh, realistic, so to speak. That's all I've got to say. Thanks. Well, we, we also know that there have actually been Ukrainian commanders relieved uh, because of... Um, being bad commanders. Uh, I, I, Chuck, I don't know if you've uh, heard or read about what Aaron is uh, speaking of here. Yeah, I, I, I have. And, you know, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not really surprised either because you, know, you, you go through a war, right? You, 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 start with, uh, you start with a peacetime army. And combat is the crucible. And it is the crucible, of course, for every man who man and woman who fights in it. But it is especially the crucible for leaders. And unfortunately, with the consequences being literally life and death, and beyond that, in this case, national survival, uh, some leaders are going to rise to the occasion. Uh, some leaders are going to be found wanting. And frankly, some leaders are going to be found, uh, you know, completely inappropriate, completely inadequate to the job, dare I say corrupt, you know, dare I say stupid, uh, inept, uh, bullheaded, petty, political. I could say all of those things. But none of that is none of that is new ever in any war anywhere. And uh it is it is the battlefield that makes great officers and great uh, combatants. So Ukraine is going to have to go through that same painful process that every nation at war uh, since uh, you know Alexander and Xenophon, that every every war, it will produce its own good leaders. and it it unfortunately, uh, it uh, it hurts its own soldiers as it rids itself of, of the bad officers. But Aaron, I'm glad you brought that up because look, we, we talk about the good and the bad here, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. 
you know, truth is kryptonite uh, to lies. And uh, it's a, it, Russian disinformation and the very subtle way that Russia influences the narrative and the things that uh, are made to stick in the, in the minds of Western news consumers and, uh, you know, some of the erroneous uh, uh, perceptions people might, ma- might, might make. But you're right. I mean, look, not every officer is going to be good. Uh, it, they're just not. And every now and then, uh, you will you will come uh, come across an exceptionally talented officer, and in that case, it's up to the organization. You know, it's up to an organization that configures itself as a meritocracy, and to allow those leaders that show great battlefield leadership, tactical acumen, to to place in their hands more and more assets to make them prosecute the war against the enemy. But I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, Colonel Spencer, welcome, and please go ahead. Hey, John. Good. Glad you're here. The cavalry's here. Thanks, brother. (laughs) Hey, Chuck. Actually, this is a a, a fascinating topic. Sorry, I missed most most of the bullet points, but Axel knows this is something I've uh, I've been pretty passionate about this week, and I just pinned – a few thoughts I had I actually written a thread, a whole thread, and then got didn't get a chance to push it out and lost it about putting the Ukrainian military and its challenges, its its uh, limitations, its failures, its um, all of it in context. And I'm you know I'm, I'm not frustrated, but I just wish that sometimes when things make national news like the status of Ukrainian training units or a Western brigade that got some training wasn't the appropriate. I mean, I know that Chuck knows this as a really a student of warfare. It's putting into context that 90% of the brigades that are currently in the field for the Ukrainian military didn't exist a year ago. Then to put into context how long it takes to train a single soldier the the all I just put up a you know I put up a thread and the second thread is this ideal from this guy named John Lynn as a historian about when we talk about a military unit's performance its combat effectiveness it's actually multiple systems of systems working together that people who serve in the military almost take for granted like soldier discipline um, that every single soldier has been baseline on basic soldiering tasks as in like you know, you stand off to the, you know, you stand away from somebody when you're patrolling, like all, all these things, or um, even within a single squad, company, or platoon, when you receive a new person, yeah, that person may have received, for us, 22 weeks of training just to be a private, but he's joining a formation with decades, as in some of those senior non-commissioned officers will have served over 20 years in the military. The private has just been turned into from civilian into soldier. But the Ukrainian is fighting, and they mass mobilized 900,000 soldiers in a year. And they didn't have the chance to do it. And there are many reasons, and if we want to discuss those, to do it like in the past it has been done. If you think about World War One, World War Two. Every soldier went through some type of mass training location, 
And then there were different for, different ways of doing it. World War One, World War Two, where you join a unit, the unit would get play, you know trained together and then get fielded. Of the different units that I have visited or my friends have visited, and and, and probably um, other people on the panel may have visited, you're just not going to get a standardization in any unit because because of there are different services in that um, the military. There's different fielding of them. There's been such attrition rates where like if you, yeah, I, I'll, you know, officers do have responsibilities, but you know, the kind of questions that I wouldn't want to ask in the events is, okay, what was the level of training experience, all of that. And and lastly, I know Dr. Nick will appreciate, appreciate this is that I also kind of cringe why here reverting to the Soviet methodology. I, I, for some reason, it just bothers me where it's almost like um, now shorthand for the untrained, dumb uh, attrition. Even attrition warfare is not, you know, the Soviets don't have, have the, 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 the onus on attrition warfare. You know, it, you, you can say, and I know Dr. Nick will know this, I mean, you put a unit behind the unit, and Chuck was talking about it before, behind the unit, you're going to shoot that guy, that unit, if it falls back. Okay, you can say that's a Soviet methodology. Yes, I'll give you that. But if if the Ukrainians are fighting in a certain way and say, well, they're you know, they're fighting the Soviet methodology, as opposed to what the Western methodology, where air power is step one and a Western system, and even our doctrine, I always get frustrated with this. If, if you take the doctrine, most of the Western training doesn't happen collectively, as in like at at a training organization. It happens in the unit. The unit is responsible for training themselves. And they go to a book, and then they train it, and then they set up a training event, things like this. So I don't think there's a Soviet unit or a, a Russian unit that is that does that and then says, okay, we're going to fight like this stupid way. We're going to send masses of formations, and then we're going to do this. We're gonna do it. It's almost like it, the Soviet way has been the shorthand for the, the non-military way. So uh, I'm on a little bit of a rant, but – the, the biggest point of coming coming up was that I want us to put into context the complexity of any military formation around the world will include enlisted, you know, non-commissioned officers and officers who have been trained, educated, and experienced. And if you look at a single formation, at even a company in the infantry, decades and decades, and that includes battalion commanders, brigade commanders. And Ukraine is doing a lot. But in this area, what did we expect them to do fielding this military? And so, uh, Chuck, back to you, then to Dr. Nick, uh, then to John Spencer. This is a fascinating conversation. Thank you. Yeah, John, I, I, I absolutely agree with you. And, and you know, you, you talk about guys showing up. I mean, you expect a private to show up with 22 weeks of training or, or, or often more. You know, and I think about the young officers showing up. And, uh, you know, four years at West Point, uh, world-class education, uh, probably the finest in the world. But that, that young officer uh, shows up. And uh, I, I was that young officer at one point, and I was lucky to have a senior chief take me under his wing. Uh, not quite so lovingly, but a uh, guy to teach me the, uh, 
the hard and easy lessons about leadership. And that was just to set me on my way, right? I had, uh, you know, it took me years to learn my craft and, and to come up. And that, you know, John, that is something that has fascinated both of us uh, over the years. And, you know, not just in an academic sense, because I know we've both seen terrific leadership on the battlefield. And uh, uh, your own leadership is an example to me as well. And we've seen bad leadership on the battlefield. And what makes a good leader as a commissioned officer and and probably more important as a senior enlisted non-commissioned officer what what makes good leaders i and that that is a that's just this fascinating process I, why don't you talk a little bit about that since i've got a west point professor here folks there's no one better to ask this question to uh it, well, thanks chuck and and i'm not going to take that 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 uh praise there after having read your books yes, and you, know your experience. I'm not taking it. Yeah, yeah, you are. <laughs> um, so I, I 100% agree with you. And, you know, it's actually hard, like I said, and, and I've struggled with this even, understanding the complexity of the military system. So what does good leadership look like? Of course, you know, good men rise to the occasion, right? Like President Zelensky, like nobody could have articulated the, the virtues of, a, of a, a commander-in-chief in war and say, okay, these are the things he needs to have. Uh, you have to test some of these things, but I, I do agree with um, the, we would teach at West Point um, and try to simplify the complex, right? So what are you asking for a good leader? In my opinion, I, and I'm not just giving the, the book answer, it's literally what makes the most sense to me is that it's, of course, it's character, right? So West Point always talks about, like, it doesn't matter about the four years of experience of building leaders of character because under the extremists of combat, your character will be exposed, and that's how you get to things like war crimes and all this. And the and the society has entrusted, and I think Ukraine has done spades beyond what anybody could ever have imagined in the character and execution of their defense of their nation, right? Where it could have gone in a lot different direction, but they actually have embodied uh, the character of the right, the this is what we do. This is this is the things that we don't do. We actually don't see that everyday character. But it's so it's character, and then it's competence, right? So competence is what we're, what I'm talking about about all the um the understanding. And one of the things, and Chuck, you triggered me to it when you said you know, when you fall in as a lieutenant, you know, you had this senior commissioned officer who has eight, about 18 years of experience. And this is from my last experience in Ukraine. One of the things I wrote down when I was talking to a, a guy named Eric Kramer, who I want to put on my podcast, who's been training for last year. And I just never thought about how hard this would be if it, if it wasn't there because I've fallen into or been around organizations where every individual understands their role and responsibilities from the private to the specialist, to the sergeant, to the lieutenant. And I actually had to have to fight, you know, I had, as you can imagine, as a, a lieutenant who was a fire sergeant class, I often had to have to fight with some non-commissioned officers. Like, look, I know my responsibilities. And then uh, there's that aspect. But to train a Ukrainian company, or he, he, would, he would talk about a battalion commander. And that person, just because they had not been in the position, had no idea on what his role and responsibilities were. 
even though he was trying his best to do everything that he or she thought was the right thing to do. But military is, is, is both a science and an art. So every person in a formation, um, not even having a standardized and shared understanding of their role and responsibility, you can imagine what happens in war if, if that's the case and everybody's looking to somebody to make this decision or to direct this and there's not a shared understanding of that duty and responsibility. So I, that one kind of blew my mind when I was um, doing that and understanding that. But for us, it's what makes a good leader. It's character, competence. And then the last one's commitment, right? Um, and this is about like why people serve and everything. And, and Ukraine will never have an issue with the leaders of, of, of commitment. But it is something, again, if you look at that slide I put up in the second part of my tweet about the other, the motivation system and sustaining motivation and things like that. Um, a leader, especially not a commissioned officer, officer has to have that commitment and, and, and embody it and um, persona it because it, it is a, a, a vital part of leadership. Yeah. It's, and you sort of, you, it, it's a, it's a, you know, this is a people thing. So there are, there are all sorts of different kinds of people and not everybody is, is going to go into that crucible and, uh, and, and come out uh, a winner. It, it, it just doesn't happen. And especially when you're, you're you've entered a war, uh, you are a, a, a democratic nation or an aspiring democratic nation you have citizen soldiers and you're embracing that, that model. And there's this big, huge transition folks to be, you know, one day you're a civilian and you don't just, nobody snaps a finger and you come out a, uh, a, a combatant. I mean, it is a years long process and I, I, and it's a longer, uh, you know, a couple of things happen. Leaders are, are, are taught to lead. They, they mature in their role of leadership and, and some of them excel. Uh, some of them simply perform. Some of them perform perfunctively. Uh, you've got, you know, en enlisted soldiers. They have to learn these combat skills. And you, you think about the, the natural selection, the Darwinian process of putting a soldier into combat, Right. There's some skills you've got to pick up right away, or you're not going to be alive very long. And it goes the same thing for leaders. With unfortunately, the consequence that bad leaders are going to kill soldiers. Uh, but but as as that whole thing melds, uh, you know, a company is this living organism, and when it's in combat, part of its Parts of it melt away, and then they're reinforced, as you've you've seen in Band of Brothers that that whole process. But eventually, this nucleus will be formed, this sort of self-sustaining, uh, you know, I don't want to even say this Band of Brothers that it, that are the beating heart of this combat unit, and the best units are those that can can see this path to self-perpetuation, you know, and, and those byproducts are called, you know, esprit de corps, Alon, uh, that brotherhood that exists. 
I think Sebastian Younger has written about that, you know, the, the platoon. That's what Oliver Stone was writing about. Those 30 guys that become that tribe. But it is so fascinating, John, and I've read read your books as well. The whole the whole art of developing leaders and and you know, many people who have have uh, leadership thrust upon them, right? Uh, guys that, you know, a doctor or a lawyer, he finds himself a combatant now in, uh, you know, fighting for the life of his nation. Some people want to rise to that, to, to the occasion. Some people simply want to survive. But what's always fascinating to me is how those leaders are developed and, and, and how some of the best leaders I've ever known, look, they come from the ranks, right? I, I was privileged to serve in a in in the, the one part of the United States military where 50% of our officers, 50% are prior enlisted. There's no other part of the U.S. military in any branch of any service where we've got that many guys who who made that journey. Uh, and that's always interesting to me, John. Yeah, I, I have a lot to follow up on, but you know, I know Dr. Nick's been, been waiting. Go ahead. I wrote notes down. Like, this is a really passionate topic for me, and I'll keep it tied to Ukraine. Um, no, but, but John, I'm glad you're aboard, man. There's no one else yeah. better to talk about this. And, and Dr. Nick, please jump in. You know, I, is, I'm finding it hard now to say something new because in the span of your conversation, you guys have covered pretty much everything I was going to say. Um, you know, I had started out by wanting to support what, um, you know, uh, uh, Colonel Spencer was talking about in relation to uh, the frustration. Uh, it's just constant in uh, various uh, papers and reports about uh, the uh you know, the lacking or slagging um, Ukrainian uh, counteroffensive or how slow it is or, you know, um, how they failed in this one area. And what does it mean now for, you know, <laughs> the, um, you know, the war in Ukraine and um, uh, uh, the congressional supporter or whatever it is, you know, whatever these weird angles are. Um, and it's it's extremely frustrating um, between uh, a lack of understanding of what it means to actually one engage in a counteroffensive, and then two, what I mean, particularly in this particular context. But then two, um, like what we were saying here. I mean, uh, a lot of these people now who are currently fighting. Um, yes, some of them are veterans, but there's a lot of new people there as well. And again, a lot of these people, just in general, were not fighting not that long ago and they were just converted and so it's just this concept of you know how long this takes and the training and blah 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 and you know I, I just think back to my own training and all of that and and what that all entailed and you know all of that and, and you would kind of mention too um uh you know world war one and world war two and and how all that worked and you know the mass training that was involved there and you know but of course that was different because you know, yes, while we were um, uh, technically invaded, quote unquote, there wasn't an active fighting on the continent here. So, you know, that that was different. And, you know, there was a little bit more time involved that we could do. And, you know, we could spend a little more time. But, you know, 
it's just different when you have active fighting on your territory and, and all of that. And it's, to me, it's just very frustrating um, to see the, the way that, that this is portrayed and, um, you know, the, the attitudes towards this in, in various outlets. Um, so you guys had pretty much covered it and I, I don't want to belabor the point too much. Uh, so, um, you know, and, and as for the leadership uh, uh, discussion, you know, I, I really uh, agree with what you said too as well. And, um, you know, one of the things that I really look to uh, as far as leaders and uh, particularly military leaders, one of my favorite people, and I, I, I loved it, but I loved him before he was cool, was um, General Grant. Um, I, uh, also, um, uh, was a big fan and it's true. My husband and I were talking about this guy last night, but he brought him up first was Eisenhower. Um, I'm a fan of him too. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I look to people, um, you know, that are one of the things I think is important in leaders is your ability, not only to be confident, um, you know, to, uh, uh, to know what you're doing, um, to rise to the occasion, all of those things that we talked about, to have that confidence, but then also to have that confidence to let the people below you do what they need to do um, and to have confidence in them. I mean, that's kind of, I think, what you were talking about as well, um, John, and as far as like everybody plays a part and they know their part and they have to do their part, right? And so you as a leader have to be able to understand that and let go. Um, and sometimes some leaders don't want to do that. They want to micromanage um, and that doesn't really make them very good leaders. And we see that unfortunately a lot. Well, not unfortunately, it's unfortunate for them. It's fortunate for us, I guess, in the Russian case, there's, um, you know, too many, um, you know, upper, too many officers, not enough, uh, you know, upper level officers, not enough, you know, um, lower level people that are um, able to do the things that they need to do. They don't let them, um, uh, they don't give them the independence to make decisions, um, you know, on the fly and all of that. And so um, I think that's one of the differences between the Russian military and the Ukrainian military. Um, they do tend to do that more often. Of course, there are instances where it doesn't happen um, because it's just like any other military, right? I mean, you have some people that are good leaders and some people that aren't. Um, but I think that the Ukrainian military, one of the things that separates them is that they do have um, better, uh, a better stock of leadership, I think that given the circumstances, right, um, they did have um, a, a longer history of, um, you know, training with NATO troops and all of that, and they started to learn some of those tactics. But, you know, they're fighting for something, whereas the Russians really aren't fighting for anything. Um, and so they have that commitment, like you were talking about, and, you know, they really are committed to this idea. And, you know, I just, I don't know. I'm just really frustrated by, like I said, all of this media coverage. <laughs> I'm sorry because my husband's a journalist. He's probably 
give me the side eye over here um, of, of some of these things, some of the media coverage, I should say. Um, and I just had to say, I love what you said about leaders and all of that. And I just wanted to sort of underscore the notion of, of um, you know, letting the people underneath you um, do what they need to do as well. So I'll just kick it back over to you guys. Yeah, I, I think there are probably Ukrainian leaders emerging tonight, Chuck and John and Dr. Nick. That they might be privates, that they might be corporals or lieutenants, uh, but they are doing something uh, in the field of battle uh, they didn't know they could do, uh, and they're doing that tonight. Uh, I'm reminded, John, of the Azovstal defenders that you interviewed. Uh, I was just uh, looking for one in particular. Uh, I think his first name is Dennis. Uh, he was uh, one of the uh, Ukrainian prisoners in Turkey who was released, uh, and he has gone back to his unit to lead them on the battlefield. Yes, the the, the brigade commander, Denis, his call sign is Redis. That's whose wife I met and who... Um, which is an aside, but if you watch the video, the latest video, which is great, um, of the Azov Brigade in training, I see like all the intangibles that you need to as the building blocks for creating combat effectiveness, if that makes sense. And uh, thanks, Doctor Nick, and, and I hundred percent agree with, with all you, you said. You know, what's sparking kind of my motivations, and I, you know, I got to get back to urban warfare and my podcast editing, which is my bane of my existence. But are some of the headlines about not just the performance, but also, um, and I'm, and like you said, we got to talk about the self-critical. About I can see why a soldier who went to training um, and just trained in a bunch of basic skills. Uh, for 10 weeks and then returns to Ukraine and then says, well, they didn't train me on the things that I'm being asked to do, like clear your assault uh, of trench line, which is a battle drill for us, or clear mine wire obstacle or conduct combined arms breach. Um, as a, you know, if I just, you know, if we weren't talking about Ukraine, that's a high level collective task. Which is kind of the issue with the with the leadership, right? The, that participative, like we teach all these different styles of leadership, that are actually, you know, there's not one good or wrong, right or wrong way. The good leader uh, is emotionally intelligent enough to know when and what type of leadership he needs to use in the most in the moment. So if I was dropped into any a war zone, and but I was given a untrained organization, I would want to build it up, and that's why I put. Even in the U.S. Army, like, yeah, you get all these, you get privates from basic training. You get NCOs that go to NCO training. You get officers that go to F training. Every unit will then do a cycle where they start with individual skills, like, and literally for weeks, validate proficiency and standardization of individual skills, and then go team, squad, platoon, company, um, because you can't take anything for granted in, in the unit has to function as a unit and i really like chuck you referencing band of brothers because we do need these and you know these analogies in which everybody can understand because they've seen it and as i watch band of brothers even in the formation of the unit i still see some of the core building blocks it's required to take a formation from gathering them together 
to sending them into war, things such as every person knew their role. Like the duties and responsibilities is what we, you know, put some doctrine in some miracles, it's doctrine. So if you don't have that, a lot of things can go wrong. And the officer can't allow what we call mission command, basically allowing the, you know, issue the guidance, the, you know, the task and the purpose or the intent. And then, okay, good people will execute. Well, you can't do that if everybody isn't competent or understands their duties and responsibilities. There's another book that we use um, that you kind of, depending on who you talk to within the, the U.S. Army, it's called Once an Eagle. It's this giant dictionary of a book. And it's fiction, but it actually brings out some of these core kind of building blocks in both leadership and in units. And the whole thing is, is like, look, I can't train you in – like I can train a unit. I can take any infantry unit, and I can train you step-by-step step in assault a trench line. I can teach you step-by-step step clear a minefield. But if my starting point is that nobody knows anything about basic soldiering – it, it, it's just not possible. Like there's too many inherent assumptions in the tactics that we all talk about that when you, if you all have one year and, I, and just because you're a veteran and combat experience to me, you know, yes, that's important. Um, I think the Western strength isn't the Western ideal of what is the type of fighting that they need to teach. The Western strength is that this ability to teach that every individual has this level of competency and mastering the basics. And if you ma- if you have a baseline of the basics, and I understand that everybody knows, at least that, hey, I'm a private, this is my duty and responsibilities, I'm a sergeant, I'm an officer, then I can, I can adapt to any tactic and rapidly at the unit level teach the tactic that will lead to more times than not, because that's what doctrine is really, it's just recommendations of doing something where more times than not, it will work successfully for you and you will get, you'll have less killed. That's what tactics are. They're just things that have been learned in history. Um, and that I can only do that if I have a baseline and how hard that would be with a million people who weren't baselined before being sent into the field. It's a wicked problem because the solution to it is really, there is no solution to it. But for me, it's a context of understanding um, and even Eisenhower, which is which is a great point, Doctor Nick. If ever, if people knew Eisenhower's background, he had no combat experience, had no command experience above battalion command, and was because of his expertise in planning, which is a whole different topic than tactics, that takes years and years and years of training, education, reflection, the, the cycle of learning. That's why Eisenhower rose, not. So I, he definitely had to deal with uh, this, these people don't, this guy doesn't have any combat experience. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Doesn't know that, that, that line kind of frustrates me. Um, it, it, understanding the system that is a military organization that I can have you, the, the adaptability comes when we baseline everything. And that's from the trainers I've talked to in Ukraine. That's one of the frustrations is that, that standardization of the baseline which then allows for this sequential and progressive training. If you look at the Azov Brigade's videos, is they get it, although I know it's one data point of 100 brigades. Um, 
it's just something as I wrote in my notebook when I was in Ukraine last, and I, I Ashley popped in, she popped out. I wrote down that the Ukrainian military needs Baron von Steuben. If you know what Baron von Steuben did for the U.S. military for George Washington at Valley Forge, as a you know as a military officer with no experience in what the American revolutionaries and the American army at that point in 1776 was doing, but he knew about standards. So he wrote, he came into Valley Forge and wrote a very small book, which became really the foundation of the U.S. military's doctrine called the Blue Book. And it just said stuff like, you know, you keep your rifle clean, you wear your boots, you do this. It, it standardized so many basics and that became literally the, the the turning point of a military that was struggling to hold it together they brought in a foreign officer to just standardize training at valley forge and create the blue book which if anybody ever wanted to give me a retirement gift it would be an original copy of the blue book i'm just saying uh but the blue book and it, as i visited different services of the ukrainian army although they're doing amazing things that standardization is lacking in the, and as I hear these headlines, I, I think more deeply into the, into the whys, or even if it's coming from a Ukrainian soldier, like I understand, like, look, I understand you went to UK, you got taught stuff that doesn't apply, but you also got taught some basics that allowed to be adapted. So it's professionalization, uh, right? Yes. Colonel Spencer. I mean, yes. the, the, what you were talking about in relation to the blue book and all of that. And, um, like that kind of stuff is, I mean, in those basics are, you know, like you said, are really important because of, because of that. I mean, because of that notion of professionalization, I think that, I mean, just, just sort of thinking back, it's like, you know, those basics, like, for example, making sure your rifle is clean, um, you know, uh, I don't know, um, making sure, um, geez, I don't know, just trying to think of different things that, that I could, uh, uh, pop out there. What? Don't, don't leave spent round. I don't know. Things like that. Um, whatever, just, um, stuff like that. Just anything, just the, those things can mean the difference between life or death you know, down the road, for example. Um, and that they are things that will build on other skills later. Um, also, and like you said, um, and like we know, they, um, you know, are things that are across the whole military in general, and can, you know, transfer um, and build out to larger units, um, you know, from, you know, platoon to company, battalion, whatever, um, and can, you know, allow you to um, move as larger units, smaller units, um, and to lead to, you know, situations where you can be more flexible with doctrine and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, it, it seems so basic and silly. You know, I remember learning some of these, you know, silly basics and thinking, gosh, you know, what does this even matter? And then later you learn, well, I guess it does matter, <laughs> you know, um, you know, when you're putting some of these things into practice. Um, so, 
uh, yeah, I mean, these things do matter down the road and, um, you know, they, they get built upon, um, with other skills so that you are able to do things like learn how to clear a trench or to do other things. So, um, you know, but I, I mean, I guess I can see how they would be frustrated about that. Um, but you know, at the same time, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I guess that, I mean, I guess some of these, uh, uh, I guess some of these officers, uh, you know, are going to have to spend a little bit more time, uh, with them, you know, in quote unquote downtime, you know, building on some of these skills, but, you know, those basic skills still are important, you know, that, that level of professionalization does matter. I don't know. That was just the first thing that popped into my head there. Uh, professionalization and standardization um, is, is really crucial um, in, in a military. Yeah. I mean, well, you look how, yes. oh, go ahead, Chuck. Oh, please go ahead, John. Go ahead. No, I think, I mean, some of this is my own scar tissue and Chuck knows, probably knows this from, and don't make me sound like the, the American system doesn't do this. As I took a company in combat who had allowed all the systems to kind of falter, the, the weren't doing the basics and, and it was really Lord of the Flies and under distress. It, and I didn't instill any great leadership. I just said, I know I've been around. I know the basics. We're going to get back to the basics from individual to NCO to officer basics. And, and I can give um, anecdotes from Ukraine, but it's, it is that. And, and when you said professionalization, uh, Dr. For we, we, the U S military, actually U S army had actually struggled for a little while with a bunch of things like uh, Abu Ghraib and things like that. So we had, we went through this massive, like, what does it mean to be in a profession campaign? And one of the things, and, and, and again, I love when people can simplify the complex and it's the, the manual, which actually there's a manual now called Army Professionalism. One of the issues in, in what Chuck was talking was called self-policing. So a profession self-polices itself. Usually it's through standards, both of um, like entry, like if you're a doctor, you have to pass the medical boards. If you're a lawyer, you have to pass the bar. Um, if a military doesn't have those gates to entry, then it's not its professionalism will be challenged. And if it's not self-policing, like firing commanders who are clearly not demonstrating a certain competency. And the one anecdote that I remember from my last trip was uh, they're trying to train a battalion and a battalion commander, they're asking, they keep asking where he's at. And he's down trying to do the best he can, issuing orders to squads because he just doesn't have the training and education to know that that's not what the battalion commander does. That these are the duties and responsibilities. Like, and I can actually open a book. And I often did in my military career for twenty five years. I'd, I sometimes would get lost and like, okay, I need to open up the book. And as a platoon sergeant, these are my duties. I, I'll do a whole bunch of things, but these are my duties and responsibilities. Um, and that's part of the professionalization that has to self police, has to have these standards, has to have these entries. And how hard it is to do this while fighting for your lives and going from a hundred thousand to a million in a year, too big, too fast, but there's no other choice. Uh, John, no. wouldn't that be one of the hardest things uh, to do professionally as a professional soldier is telling a company or a squad, uh, we're going to go back to the basics. 
that that's almost like telling experienced soldiers we're starting basic training all over again. No, and I had I actually had to do that. But if I was, you know, how hard would it be to John Spencer? You know, nobody goes to a, a brigade on the front line. Going look, this is I understand, but these are the things that I recommend be done um, now. And they're not tactical. They're they're basic soldiering things that which which then enable the tactics to be executed in the, the TLP process in the rehearsal and all of this, but none of that can happen without these, these, these basics, um, both by position and by the organizational model. Right. So I, I agree with Dr. Ford. That's a way I, if I point to Soviet model, that is a Soviet model. The officer has the duties and responsibilities. He controls the command of action and there is little subordinate sub action because that's the way it's designed if you're going to go with a western methodology it requires a lot and, and i'm not saying this is all bad there are i've seen lots of ideas for solutions and those solutions would work and they'd be really hard to do at this time but i think they're they're needed um everything from i i talked to some very senior level people about going out and actually identifying what the problems are so uh, many commanders from Napoleon to Petraeus, even in a system which you think is working right, has to send, they call them telescopes, down all the way down to where the problems are and assess. Now that person has to have the competence to understand what they're looking at and bring that back to the commanders, bring that back to the institutional base, which is sending new units to the front. That cycle was also an, a critical piece of the cycle that even the U.S. military was was really messing it up. We created new organizations because we couldn't get it right there, like the Asymmetric Warfare Group. And um, Petraeus created his own people who were his team that would go out to the front line to see, at least from a military unit performance level, like what's the problem here? And it could be a person or it could be a system. Uh, it could be a training that had to happen. And they stood up training when you enter theater, like, okay, everybody has to get this thing, this training, which is a, a lever, right? Most militaries will pull two levers. One lever is training. One lever is leadership. It's always a leader's fault or it's always, you need more training. And sometimes it's a system and that, that's true, but sometimes it's a system, 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 systemic problem. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Colonel Spencer, I was kind of, um, uh, uh, the last thing I said was kind of, um, a question, though I kind of made it a statement. Um, if, if say that it's a, you know, a, like a platoon uh, or a, um, uh, not a platoon, but a company or whatever problem, um, you know, or some of these like, um, you know, battalions or whatever, right? Um, what would you say? So, um, would you say that, uh, you know, because there's these different uh, battalions um, within the military there. Um, would you, <laughs> I know I just said something stupid. I'm sorry, I, I took some medicine because I, I had surgery last week. But anyway, so um, would you say that uh, the different um, uh, people who are in charge, should they uh, uh, pull these, pull, pull the people aside and train them in their downtime like and and like 
uh, do some like sort of um, field training in the downtime and sort of try to hone some of these things there? Because I mean, obviously, they're going to have to fix some of this stuff for new incoming troops, right? Um, but are they going, could they do something? Because I don't know the question because I haven't you know, been in combat, obviously. So my question would be like, can they do something about this in real time with the people that are already in the field um, would be, I guess, kind of my question. Absolutely. I mean, you have to prioritize sector and um, have the man, the, the personnel, which in order to go assist uh, a unit and, and being able to do that. You can do that by standardizing a process. And I actually talked to some Ukrainians about that. Um, and that's why they, they really asked, which I found it fascinating that we're, I was in these meetings that I weren't, you know, I didn't plan to be in. And they were asking about, well, how do you do after action review? And I Chuck, it's just, a, it's just ingrained in your process that that's what you do. Right. Um, so if it's a time on the line, on the trench, is that that's the mission and um in the system as soon as you come off that you assess how you did that's a professionalization thing it's not currently in the ukrainian army so that makes it really challenging to be a learning organization to identify not in their downtime dr ford but just in their um in their cycle of of deployment because they'll have a training you know kind of rest and recuperation pull off line Sometimes that's days, sometimes that's weeks, sometimes it's nothing. And then they go into preparation and usually in that preparation phase, but in a professional military, you're doing that assessing thing, the after actions review uh, or the, uh, we, I actually talked to him too about uh, what's called a patrol debrief uh, because the, you have to create the data, which allows you to change what's wrong. <clears throat> that's again, a part of people just don't understand take for granted and we my unit wasn't doing it when i joined them in iraq and it was one of the first things like that's self-policing right if you as an organization identify we just did this operation here are the things we can do better we got this many people got sick because of the 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 shitter was too close to a you know the, you know people all these other things um that is something i think could be done um but again it it, you can do it by process, and this is what I talked to the Ukrainians about. You can establish a process of the after action review. You can send people forward and have them assess external evaluation and say, okay, look, this unit is not that unit. This unit needs to work on uh, you know, non-commissioned officer you know, um, adhering to standards, right? discipline, right? which people you know, get over crazy about sometimes, but that can actually be breaker make or break of a unit in general if the that discipline isn't a part of the system but yes you could absolutely there's lots of ways process um people that could make it better and and i guarantee like we know there are in some areas there are units that are doing amazing things and you, and you hear about them and, and we hear about their their nomenclature of the unit like why is that unit way better than that other unit well there's there there are many reasons but it could actually if there was a learning organization <clears throat> i would send people to that unit external to the and, and then take them to the other unit but you have to have the level and, and they do have these right that 
the deputy commander of the territorial defense, which has its own issue, the deputy commander of territorial defense, Brigadier General Soboko, is more Western trained than he is any other way. He w- he went to the the infantry captain's career course. He went to the, uh, the command and general staff college for level. He has had more training than I ever had. And and you could tell he was doing all these things to trying to establish an, uh, an SOP book and all these things. Um, they, they have the people. They just got to start in and they want to do these processes, but they're also you know fighting a war. But um, this some of this stuff is just not public as well. Right. SOP, for those that don't know, is standard operating procedure. But yeah, yeah. Uh, Thanks so much for that, um, Colonel Spencer. Sorry. Sorry for rambling. This is just like a, and Chuck knows it, this is just such a passionate project, uh, topic for me. No, and Uh, I love, I love listening to you speak about it. Um, I mean, I know that some of those things are definitely um, possible, uh, but, uh, you know, hearing about, uh, you know, the, the detail of that is uh, really interesting. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, John, you're not rambling. Uh, In fact, you've generated, you and Chuck and Dr. Nick have generated a lot of hands here. Uh, So I want to go to Cornelius to James, to Matthew. Let me just say one more thing, um, and I, I think Dr. Ford will appreciate this. The U.S. Army employs a vast army of um, IEO psychologists. And one of the reasons that is because this, this is about organizational issues as much as it is about you know firefights. I mean, this is a main learning from the organization and being able to understand all these sociology sociology aspects to a military system is and then again that's this is why what napoleon understood this is what baron von Steuben understood um some of these armies that were on the verge of break that that changed things it's more about organizational than it is to be honest about pieces of equipment uh, so cornelius yeah. go ahead hey. No, no, it's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Um, one of the things we don't talk about too much, and it, it, it has such a bearing on exactly what we're talking about, is the raw material you get for your military uh, in terms of HR. So the people coming in, I, I, I think sometimes we, uh, especially if we're involved in the training cycles, uh, we, we curse and, and kick the ground and stomp and spit out of frustration when troops don't get it right. Oh, don't, don't hold the grenade like this. Don't do this. Don't do that, etc. But um, when it comes right down to it, the people who are coming into our militaries that we seem to take for granted sometimes in NATO, um, those people already know that you stop at a red light. Even if there's nobody around at three in the morning, you still stop. How many other countries have people in their society that are pre-built that way to arrive at recruit school to bring that in with them. And when you factor that into your ability to train more complex and disciplined things, the advantage uh, that Ukraine has in us helping them and influencing them and leading them against Russia is incredible. I think that really, really is a big point. And, you know, John was just talking about sociology and my own background is in, in psychology and he's right. And, and 
Cornelius, you just hit it on the head. There is national character. I mean, that that is a psychological factor. Uh, a Frenchman is different than an Englishman. A Ukrainian is going to be different than a German. And you are taking that that raw material. But, you know, when people say, yeah, there are these big problems in the in the Ukrainian military and this. Let's think about this for a minute. The United States entered entered World War II, and it starts late. fighting in Europe and right late and Europe in North Africa. They land an Operation Torch, and then after that, the first real battle that the United States Army got into was at a, pay, at a place that still sends chills through most American combatants, and that is the Kasserine Pass, where America, frankly, got disassembled. That was the learning curve. And the generals were relieved in charge of that, and John knows who was put in their place. Another general who was made out of different stuff, and that was George S. Patton. So every armed force you know, goes through this. You start the war as a peacetime army, and then you face that curve. And when, John, when you were saying when you had to go into that company and go back to basics, that sent a chill down my, you know, my spine as well, because that's, that's a hard place to be as a leader. It, it really is, because one of the things you're saying to the organization is, you guys have lost it. Right. Those and those those little things. Right. The basic soldiering skills. That's something that a commander should hope that, uh, you know, his unit is is uh, is capable of when you assume command. Military discipline is another term that comes to mind. Uh, John, spot on, John, Nick. John, go ahead. Yeah, 100 percent. I mean, this in different militaries have approached that aspect. But if you don't have the discipline, it's really hard to have a cohesive, a coherent, a cohesive, a different topic, coherent formation. Um, if you have discipline, you have a lot. Uh, the other, I think the dirty little secret that sometimes frustrates me just based on my own scar tissue, and I'm a, a data point of one, is that a lot of people don't realize how much the soldiers are doing something they haven't been trained to do. And that is almost baked into the system as in, I want to create a critical thinker and a a self learner, but I myself being assigned such things as a company attack. um, I I know my training and education wasn't on how to do a company attack. I'd never done one, but it was that if given this mission, here are the locations in which you'll see we've written down and this is this is the real one of the 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 evolute doctrine is all the blood and treasure that's been sacrificed in the past and figured out a way to do it again that leads to success more times than not and to know to go i have to go review this um way to do a company attack way to build a trench line way to clear a combi- uh a complex minefield Nobody was, I was, the system isn't made like, okay, I'm not going to ask you to do that in combat until I train you. No, no, that, that's the power of the Western system is I'm going to create leaders who understand that they need to um, also know how to gather the information based on all these available resources. 
now as an institution, you have to make sure people know where that is. And that's, you know, from the mini manual, that was just dust off stuff that's in books. Um, The other thing, and I think Chuck definitely understands it, is that uh, the other system, the Western system, which I think might not be the the Ukraine, the, the Soviet system, is that there is no leader who does not have a leader above him that is supposed to be developing that person. Because that person above him has ha- has had to have figured it out himself. So whether it's a – yeah, the platoon leader has a non-commissioned officer. The company commander has a, a first sergeant. You know, that's our system to have that tactical advisor. But every echelon above that person, the guy above him is supposed to be developing that person. Matter of fact, they say there's the you know there's that's a part of the duties and responsibility. Again, if I was Baron, you know Baron von Steuben of any war, that would be a critical component of the officer's responsibility. Is you're supposed to be developing the guy below you, not just issuing orders. So when you look at the person and say okay, I want you to go do a night ambush on this road. And you can tell that that person has no idea how to do that. That's part of leadership is identifying when you need to change your leadership style and provide the guidance, provide the more detailed rather than this is the mission you should have already been trained before you got here, execute. Like, no, that's not the way it works. Uh, uh, John, uh, Chuck, Dr. Nick, I want to welcome Yehuda. Uh, please join in. Thanks. I don't want to try. I know Matthew and everyone has a hand up. So just to add supporting fire. So what John says, a lot of people have asked, especially since the full scale, scale invasion uh, that Russia launched last year, um, you know, they hear the words officers, sergeants, NCO, and a lot of questions have come up. What does it mean? What do you, you know, what do you, how is it different? You know, uh, there's probably a Hollywood vision that the officers, the the person who's, you know, the superstar and then everyone else is a sergeant or a corporal and then they just follow. Um, it's, it's can't be farther from the truth. In fact, it might much, that might be more of the Russian way of doing things. Uh, but it goes even down to the training for NCOs and officers. You have, you know, a sergeant's course is very much like a lieutenant's course or a lieutenant's course in terms of scope. And, um, and you could, you could argue what it does is it builds a redundancy, right? So a lieutenant and a, and a, and a sergeant or a warrant officer, uh, have, have a, have a pretty close relationship and, you know, the technical, uh, know-how often it lays with the NCO. Uh, the big picture planning might lay with the officer, or company commander, as as, as we know we call, uh, you know, captain. And you have a, a warrant officer, and, and John says it's called the first sergeant. I'm going to take his word for it. Um, these roles are very um, uh, harmonized, and they have to be. Uh, so, so it you know, there's not. I'm the I'm the captain. You listen here for a sergeant. You shut up and do what I. No one talks like this, right? It, they do talk like that in the Russian army, uh, but in, in in Western armies, uh, there's a great deal of respect and back and forth and interplay. Um, often, you know, a lieutenant could make a mistake, and perhaps an older sergeant who works for that lieutenant might say, "You know, sir, perhaps perhaps the trench, perhaps these trenches should be here instead." What do you think, right? And that's just the way 
that works, right? Because often the NCOs have the experience, um, you know, especially on a junior level and, and that ability to be able to, to give feedback and not get yelled at or thrown in a dungeon or something, um, which is very much the Russian way of doing that. There, there are, there are, there, we've seen it anecdotally thousands of times already. You've seen uh, Russian, uh, you know, you've heard of stories or you we've witnessed videos of, of soldiers being beaten silly, um, you know, say, Hey, my, 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 my officer told me to bring back this wounded person. And then they're being almost murdered by, by some Russian woo crazy person. Um, you know, so that doesn't happen on our side, right? There is that relationship. There is, you know, um, if the, if the officer is, is, is in, incapacitated, boom, the sergeant, the warrant officer, the first sergeant picks up where the other person left off. And that kind of relationship is what makes it so effective. And again, people ask, we don't understand what is decentralized, centralized? What does it mean? What are Ukrainian super soldiers? No, they, they train effectively and they have command relationships that are common sense, you know, to the way to describe it is a common sense thing, right? You don't want to be on an airplane with one pilot and no one else that knows anything about planes. You, you want to have two pilots. You want to have, you know, people who know stuff. You have a navigator, you have engineers, all for a reason. So I, I know John wanted to jump in. Sorry. No, I uh, 100% agree. And that's something that you can't build in a year. You can't build those checks and balances where you have a guy with, I don't care if it's not in combat, but 14 years of service in the system to be able to look to a senior, either non-commissioned officer, senior officer, and make a recommendation on, um, I think, sir, you should be doing this. Even if you have a, a, a trust foundational system, it's almost impossible to have that in a year without a year's worth of understanding the military system. And, and the second thing I want to say is we, we talked about um, – professionalization and we talked about you know, a couple of key figures who kind of have their own uh, every military has their guys right the eisenhowers the blood and guts the omar bradley's the um you know all these guys um even Patton, um if you understand who he was did some of the things he did based on historical examples like he was such a student of warfare um and there's the famous quote of like rommel i've, I've read your book uh that yes. they're not relying i yeah. love that Go line ahead. yeah yeah that line uh, but he was also i mean he's reading caesar he's reading napoleon um you cannot and i guess this is my frustration even and i have like we say nobody has that is currently serving some of the experiences ukrainians do okay absolutely and we should put that into context and understand what they're going through but i of the military greats from all the great captains, they're all reflective of the past. They've learned from other experiences. They've learned from other um, you know, battles, wars, all that, and then applied it under a new context. Yeah, thanks, Scott. Your mic's hot. You know, I, I will add this real quick. Sorry, John. I'm sure John will will uh, giggle with me. Um, uh, at the end of the last last summer, when the Russians really started, you know, started the last Kharkiv uh, in the fall, early fall, um, and and you heard of all these enormous officer casualties, huge casualties on the Russian side, and then you hear you heard people say, "Oh, well, the Russians are just going to mobilize a whole bunch of people, and ooh, they're going to be bigger and better, and yada yada, and blah blah blah." And you're hearing about you know battalions that have been decimated. Um, you know, 90% killed, 50% killed. And you think, oh, well, they're just going to fill it in with, you know, a person who was a, 
you know, mechanic uh, yesterday, a florist, uh, you know, barber, barber, uh, you know, a singer, um, they're just going to fill them in and, and, ooh, the Ukrainians are going to be in trouble. Um, I can, I don't know how it is in the U.S. Army, but I can tell you that in, 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 in regular force units, um, you have, you know, you have the soldiers in garrison, that battalion who, who have trained together. They've come out of basic training. Um, they've known each other for two, three, four, five years. Their platoon commander, uh, they've known for a, a year or two. That platoon commander uh, is a lieutenant, has been training with them. Um, you know what's not happening is they're not, you know, all the all the lieutenants are gone and all of a sudden they throw in new people. Uh, that would be a horrible situation. Uh, these relationships are, are formed uh, over training. It doesn't mean people don't switch around, but you know people, right? So you're in a battalion uh, and you've got, you know, you know that that person was the platoon commander for whatever, you know, one platoon. And then the next year that that person or two years later, that person comes back as a company commander in the same battalion. And the soldiers who are in the platoon, you know, have graduated, you know, moved up and and and, and stayed stuck around and they know that the former uh the captain who was a former lieutenant and there are these relationships and people know who they are so just to to, to have the idea that you could wipe out um you know what was it like thousands of lieutenants and and captains and just replace them with whoever and that somehow there would be some magical cohesion in the russian forces um it's absolutely insane anyone who's been in the military would giggle at that because it's it's like a hodgepodge of people uh like it's a it's like a, it's like a box of mr potato heads you know you think here we go and you're throwing them together and you got years on weird and this one doesn't match it doesn't work so that's one of the things that when we saw the massive casualties the russian army took um it's not like it gets better it only gets worse from there right you would need as john said you need that one two years really two years probably out of training and you're working together and you're developing your your sops your standard operating procedures uh when you're doing patrols you're doing you know you're mounting you're you're, you're doing mounted patrols you're doing you know all these you're doing your drills Everyone has to work together, and it's such a unique experience that people in the military gain when they do that training that anything less than that is, is, is just not just unprofessional. It's, it's suicide, frankly, I mean, especially since they're going into a war zone to try to kill Ukrainians. So that, that is why like, a lot of people think these numbers of Russian casualties are made up. They're not. I mean, you, there is no advantage in, in, that, in that type of numbers scenario. There's no advantage for the Russians. And the Ukrainians are training and fighting and they're surviving and they're, you know, reconstituting when they need to. But they all know the score, right? They all have their they, they've gained that experience where the Russians are not even if you want to use a civilian term, corporate knowledge. There's no transfer of corporate knowledge in the Russian military anymore because they're mostly gone. And you can't just fill them in with people like no one cares what your unit name is. You know, hey, we're VDV, you know, one battalion You might have heard of us. Yeah, like 90 percent of you were dead and you just filled it in the ranks with a bunch of cooks from Kursk or whatever. It doesn't make anything. All right, John. Yeah, I don't want to. Um, if Chuck wanted yeah, to, sorry, sorry. I 100 percent agree. Uh, I don't want to give any tips to the Russians on how to fix their system. So I'm, I'm on the, the Ukrainian system, but I 100 percent agree with you. And that's why the. Um, the even in the U.S. military, like when we were, we're on a when we were on a cycle again, completely different wars. I'm not correlating in the Ukraine, but it's a it's an organizational methodology that I'm trying to explain. Um, they would come back, and then you would scramble everybody in unit and reform a new unit, and that unit was protected for its entire training cycle that I talked about the progressive and sequential individual to brigade training as a formation. 
And there was actually this organizational model that the U.S. military was playing with for a long time, which they did experience in places even in World War II, is when you want to interchange units and add attachments and fill in other units to make your know, like main effort or things like that, that's only possible. Um, and this is what I kind of unfortunately um, had, had some conversations on my last trip. If it's all standardized so that when you know you get a platoon of this or a squad of that or a battalion of this, again, it's ba- you, you ha- supposed to have baked in assumptions on what that element can do, what type of equipment they have, what kind of communication equipment so we can both talk to each other if we're going to do a larger scale operation how important that is. And if you don't have that standardization across different elements, then it's, then it makes, then it really leads to bad things happening when you piece them together and say, okay, I want you, I want to form you together. We actually called it moder- uh, modularity. So we could, you know, we had pictures of puzzles where we could plug in this unit, plug in this unit, plug in this unit. That's because we all had a standard of all these different things. And I know that, Chuck has talked about that with the the special units who are just uh, of such high professionalism. When you work with them, you you, you know that's there. And uh, again, and when you're trying to grow a military, and I'm not going to talk about the Russian military because I don't want to help them a bit. They should keep doing what they're doing and, and, and just let people die. But you have to create that standardization within individual units and then across you know brigades, divisions field armies you, you got to standardize that so you can interchange when you need it this is such an important conversation i don't want it to end uh, we have a lot of hands uh, and chuck if, if you have the time i hope you do uh, we have uh, still two really important maps to look at i just want to go to matthew to dr nick to james to forever child matthew um, thanks so much. Um, hello to our speakers, and, and thank you for sharing your insights. Um, I, I, I take a lot from what you said about the, the need to put um, Ukrainian military's uh, impressive uh, transition into its proper context, and um, we'll take that back when I read articles in the press that um, sometimes can seem a bit dismissive or impatient. Uh, I did want to ask about something that might be a bit more sensitive, though, which is that along with the processes that you've been talking about of creating a cohesive military that um, that involves um, giving um, junior officers and enlisted people um, more autonomy and letting them take the initiative in ways that the Soviet military didn't, um, there is also the fact that Ukraine is now um, wrestling with its own um, problems of, of attrition um, losses of, of soldiers um, in, in combat, as well as um, the, um, the um, problems of um, exhaustion and burnout of soldiers who've been in combat. And um, I've also heard it suggested, and I, I'm curious whether you think this something to this, that um, the first wave of volunteers may have been, in some sense, the best, and that the, the um, subsequent um, waves of recruits and volunteers may not be up to the same standards. So I guess what I'm building up to is, is time on Ukraine's side in terms of the evolution of its military, um, are, or are these two trends in some sense um, canceling each other out? 
Thanks. That's a good question. Well, that's a really great, great question. I'm, and I'm John, I'm glad you're, you're here on side because complex question and a complex answer, but you know, my, my short form and frame around what John's going to say, I think uh, you got to train like you're going to fight and you have to train to mission. And there's a loop between training and then performance against your mission, you know, mission capabilities. And in, in the case of the units I, w- I was in, we had, you know, maybe 20 or 30 missions that we had to train to, uh, you know, everything from a, a strategic reconnaissance, uh, direct action, high value targets, underwater demolition, maritime sabotage. The, you know, vessel board, search and seizure, all of those missions we had to train to. And uh, I was a training officer at SEAL Team 4, you know, in my, in a previous life. And I had to make sure that the platoons going out the door into combat were, were trained to mission. But there was a feedback loop, and this plays into what John was saying. The debriefing, the incoming, you know, the returning platoons, reading their their mission summaries, debriefing them. And I had to say, you know, were you trained to mission? You know, was your training appropriate? What, you know, what are you bringing back from the battlefield here? And then interesting thing, and it, I picked up when John said, when he had worked with, you know, with, with team guys before, uh, you know, and uh, saying he felt confident in their professionalism, there is this weird dynamic you know, because if you looked at a SEAL platoon with its long hair and its scruffy beards and uh, its boots unbloused and its dirty sort of ragged non-regulation uniforms, you'd be very wrong in assuming these guys aren't professional, right? So there's this, there's this weird magic to making, making soldiers perform well on the battlefield and to make sure, A, not only that they survive, John, but, right, they get better at their profession. Right, 100%, Chuck. I, everything you just said, I, I was 100% agree with. And this is kind of the paradox of, of, of and I think every military across every war has ever um, experienced, like, okay, combat experience is, is worth, um, and Clausewitz had a bunch of, of chapters in there about you, you shouldn't talk to me unless you've experienced the, the 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 sound of the bullets, the the this all of the sensations. But I have actually experienced the opposite as well. As in, yes, you have a lot of combat experience, but you have unfortunately learned the wrong experience and then not been reflective and put those experiences into this cycle of learning. Um, and just because the enemy didn't make you pay for that what the way you were doing, it doesn't mean it was the, the way that would lead to success if somebody else did the exact thing that you just did. And I, again, that's why I'm not a, a doctrinista, but um, why I, I'm, I'm a big proponent of that from an institutional way, not saying anybody's doctrine is right, but it's a methodology, right? These are processes and methods in which military is functioning, especially at scale. To answer the question, um, so I think time is both on and not on Ukraine's side. One, because I don't think that it's not on their side because of this. This is all wars, politics by other means. Ukraine's ability to keep fighting at the level they are is relying on 50 plus nations, even though it's, and we talk about it all the time, not enough. 
um, the, they fight in the context of that support um, of those logistics uh, that is based on uh, perceptions of performance, perceptions of time and duration. In that sense, I think it's not on their side because that's why they've had to accept risk and so much in the fielding of their military um, and, and all of that that leads to some things that aren't as optimized as it could be. On the aspect that I think that is is on their side is that they every day that this war continues, there are formations that are getting better. Now we're talking about processes that you could put in place to make them even better. Um, and like you said, there has been an incredible attrition. I have heard that as well, that some of the best units and many of the veterans and some of the other um, you know, these key personalities, but I think the institution as, or, or, or as a whole, and I, unfortunately, I think it just does come back to the process in which the Ukrainian military keeps this military in the field and, and the cycle of which includes institutional um, components, right? This is a big problem that a lot of militaries face is the size of their institutional army, the people responsible for fielding the operational units in which the commanders fight. Um, and I could talk about that across echelon. And, and, I, and again, I was surprised to be having these conversations with generals in Ukraine recently, just because I just hadn't thought about it, about you know, the new commander of all training for uh, Ukrainian army forces is, is struggling with this of who are my primary trainers. They have to have combat experience, of course, to be respected. But what is the evaluation forms? What is the length of training? What is the priority of their focus and, um, all these are institutional things that I think can be created, right? The fact that the Ukraine needs the ability to create this training, fielding, recuperation, learning organization cycle at scale uh, and how hard that is by geography and by all the other issues that they're dealing with. In that sense, if they pivot and they are doing some pivoting, like I said, the deputy commander of territorial offense is trying to make some huge swiping institutional changes for the way the territorial defense is trained and because they're fought as rifle battalions. And there were 80, and I, this blew my mind, there were 80 territorial defenses battalions fielded and fought in the Battle of Bakhmut. 80. I, I, I just had no idea. Um, and th their training cycle, their logistics, their support, and why we ha see so many fundraising things is not what the Ukrainian armies is. So with time, and this is also, I have a lot of people doing defense, you know, looking at defense reform before, defense reform now, and what it needs to be after the war. The, on that aspect, it, there is that the more time goes on, more Ukraine has the opportunity to fix some of these um, institutional versus operating force issues that, that are so tied together that even the soldier will be like, I, I, I don't have time for that. I, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta go get to the get to the front. Like, no, no, I, I need to pull you out, whatever position it is, um, and I need to train you in these three method, three training bases that every military knows. You have institutional training, which happens in a schoolhouse somewhere. You have unit level training, which is a process in which you establish, and then you have self training, which I already mentioned. Uh, 
you have to you have to create that in a person the the ability to self train. I, I just want to All go right. to Yehuda yeah. and Doctor Nick. Just and just I think Matthew, I, I want to delve in. I I kind of heard your question differently. I'm not sure um, if uh, I got it wrong, but I think your question has um, some. You know, you have to you know make some assumptions, which I don't know are true or not. So I think the first assumption you, you've made in, in it is that the first volunteers who signed up were the most um, uh, motivated and the, had the highest morale and therefore might have been more effective. And I'm not sure that's entirely true. Uh, and it, and I think by inference, you might have, you know, uh, meant that uh, people who have been conscripted or joined later might not have the, the gumption that the initial uh, volunteers had I, again. I don't know if that's true either, but either way, let's assume it is. Um, what 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 is different uh, is exactly what John just said, and that is there has been a year and a bit, almost a year and a half, where the Ukrainians have been able to fine tune and create training procedures, or they've been able to modify their battle schools um, to focus on um, on 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 missions that they may not have done initially. Um, so in other words, you know, engineering is a big thing. Obviously, um, this is something that they've had to focus on just to demine oodles and oodles of, of terrain, number one. Number two, um, you've got, you know, even the doctrine, uh, no one's a doctrinist in the field or in, you know, in, in, in a war, uh, as John was saying, but you've got, uh, you know, even, the, even just the organizational structure um, of your forces, you know, you don't have anti-armor platoons anymore. You've got anti-armor companies. You've got, you know, you've got, you've got layouts that just, you know, wouldn't have been thought of before uh, because that's not how we usually, you know, plan on it. And on, on top of that, you've got, um, you know, um, uh, the battle schools that have a certain, uh, you know, timeline of how long it takes to do stuff. So you have all these super smart people in Ukraine that are course correcting and saying, gosh, you know what? We need to do IT individual training for sure, 100%. We need them to be, you know, we need to make sure they don't die in the cold as they're sleeping in a, in a, in a hooch or in a, in a shell scrape somewhere. That's for sure. Okay, we got to do that now. We got to do this. And then we have to now, these units here will be mechanized. You know, there, there's no room for armor. Maybe they're not going to do combined arms in, in, in every sense of the word with every single unit um, if they have different tasks. Uh, so there, there's a lot of rejigging that's occurred in the last year and a half. So I would argue that if you thought that the conscripts later or people who volunteered later might not have, uh, you know, the motivation morale. Remember, motivation morale don't just make you um, uh, an effective soldier, right? You have to have the training. So I would argue that Yes, while in general, uh, time might not be on their side, I think, I think the uh, increasing the length of training and the complexity and custom tailoring different training regimens for specific units that will do a certain thing, like assault brigades that will be doing uh, break-ins and, and penetrations and exploitation, um, they obviously want to be uh, the command staff there, the training a commander there obviously wants to make sure certain units have certain skills that they might not have the time or luxury to give everyone. Um, but so, so in, in essence, I guess what I'm saying is in that regard, the train, the time would be on their side having, and then having feedback, right. Lessons learned after action reports, um, someone might have turned around and said, Hey, listen, we sent our people to do this, this, and this in, in the UK and in Germany. However, what we needed was more of this. And therefore, uh, if you're going to still train in, in, you know, the you know, security assistance group, Ukraine in, um, in Wiesbaden, 
and in Germany and wherever else, the training Czech Republic, uh, we, we really want them to do a little, a lot more of this. We want coordination or better combined arms training with engineers because we are working with engineers like we never had. Uh, and therefore, I think that the time that you have to have those lessons learned, to have them pushed back through the battle schools um, and then getting the feedback from commanders and, and NCOs uh, who, have, who have had that combat experience, that actually I think is worth, um, you know, is, is worth its weight in gold, I would argue. But uh, yeah, I hope that helps uh, Matthew and John. Go ahead, sorry. Yeah, uh, John, go ahead uh, then to Dr. Nick. No, no, you have covered it beautifully. I, I was actually just going to say that same thing with my, not this last year, but trip before that, seeing the flyers up for the assault brigade. And like, was that just a recruitment flyer? No, no, that's, the, that's a recruitment flyer for people that will join that very specific type of unit um, with this very specific mission. Um, and, and that was something that wasn't happening in the beginning, right? You, you, you enlisted because you wanted to fight, but where you would land wouldn't be as clear now, the challenge of, like Yehuda said, the Salt Brigade training pipeline was pretty set forward, and that's great. But then is every, you know, uh, engineering unit standardized where no matter what unit it is, you know what their capabilities and training and everything they've received. And I think that goes back to what the, um, Chuck said. Like, I didn't care what the look of a SEAL was that walked in. I know because that person is a member of that organization the amount of training and uh, autonomy and responsibility that one individual has received and the self-policing of the organization, all of that comes with like items. I know that person's proficient uh, character, competence, commitment, um, just because they're a member of that organization. And then I can plug them into the same role that I would any other person that walked in. That's the standardization that Ukraine can and, 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 and I think shit is on the path, I hope, to, to doing. But I agree with everything you just said, for sure. Uh, yeah, there's that. Oh, I'm sorry, Alan. There, yeah, there, there's that, you know, and, and in a perfect world, Ukraine is going to be able to rotate guys off the front, take those, those, those best practices and those best practitioners and, and, put them into this, uh, you know, that training loop that feeds itself back with, uh, you know, training to mission. Was the training to mission appropriate? And that measurement is, you know, military success. But, you know, that, that's, a, you know, that, that's, it, you, we're chasing the magic kingdom a little bit. It's something that every armed force, including the United States, you know, it, it's something to aspire to. And it's almost never going to be perfect. And, you know, there, there's like no other profession on earth that is so life and death in every case. And, you know, John, John, John knows this as well. I mean, you can't even describe combat to anybody. There, there's, there's just no words to tell them what it's going to be like that first time and almost every time, but that first time where it's so completely and absolutely overwhelming to every single human. You realize it's loud, it's crazy, the whole world is upside down and it's life and death. And what you fall back on in those moments is you fall back to your training. And those lessons that were really and literally written in blood right? 
those basic SOPs. Something as simple as, right, you got contact, get down, right? Return fire and not necessarily in that order. I'm talking about, you take for granted that that is part of the um, professionalization of even a private is that that automatic response without thinking that when something happens, you hit the ground. That is not something that you get from a civilian. You have to invest the time um, and there are repercussions when that is not standardized. Yeah, and 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 every 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 skill, John, that we know that builds on top of that. You can be the most trained guy in the in in the world. You freeze up at that moment of contact, and you catch some lead between your eyes, and it's over. And and all of those things on 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 top of that, you know, it, it's it's not you know it's shoot, move, communicate. You come into contact with the enemy, your world turns upside down in combat, and then, you know, in John's case, in my case, and in Yehuda's case, and lots of other people who call up here, man, all of a sudden you're in charge, and you got to maneuver against the enemy, and you got to turn this situation around right now and bring the heat to them. And, you know, we all know that's not as easy as it sounds, and it takes a lot. To get a get a man or woman to that that position, and frankly, it's complicated also because not every person is going to be able to do it. You know, the the seal spend. You know, and John, you were talking about the the organizational psychologists in in the army, and the Navy has put psychologists and and psychiatrists and sociologists, and they try to find out what sort of person will make it through SEAL training because they just, they, they don't want so many people to quit, right? Because like two in 10 people make it. So they, they figure we're going to find the guys that, you know, are, are going to succeed so we can have more SEALs. But the truth is nobody knows who's going to make it. Nobody knows. And it isn't the big, you know, muscle-bound guy with the speedo tan. Those those guys don't last a week. Why is it that the 120-pound farm kid from Nebraska makes it, and the California server dude doesn't? You know. So that's the other magic in 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 all of this, John. That is, you know, I know it fascinates you because and me as well. The 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 improbable success of some people. And the, you know, the astounding failure of others. Right. A hundred percent. And actually, you know, I teach a, I taught at a school that people think teach you, teaches you tactics, right? Ranger school. Um, it's just a, it's just a microcosm. But I've always viewed that as ha- giving an individual leader the responsibility to make a decision. And that's what that school is about. That's what training, especially for the leaders, Right, because everybody's doing their role. Like, if the soldier doesn't get down, he's dead. Um, if the this person doesn't make a decision, then there is, like in this in the Soviet system, there are reductions in performance. So that was one school where every individual leader is given a chance. Like, you're responsible. It's your decision right now, and that's a reputation. And some people would freeze, not make a decision. Okay, you're not cut out for this. Um, if you're you're in Ukraine situation, they don't have that liberty, but there is value in giving people repetition on 
you own the duty and responsibility to make a decision right now at this moment. So I just, you know, that is, I'm sorry. Ranger school is one of the, one of the, you know, one of the great leadership courses in the, in, in the whole world. And those guys get run hard, you know, cold, wet, tired, miserable, hungry, uh, and under pressure to make, to make the best decision possible. Uh, and, and, you know, you go through that and you show up to the battalion folks and you still have to take that other magical step, you know, and it is a, you know, the profession of arms. And I, I realized early in my evolution as a junior officer that I had a long way to go, right? That I was always going to be learning. And uh, there was always, you know, and it was always necessary for me to improve because you realize that, you know, people's lives are in your hands. And I took that, John, and I know you did too. I took that really seriously. I didn't want to write a letter home to anybody's mother saying, uh, Mrs. Smith, I screwed up. I didn't want to do that. And that's what kept me awake at night. And it was never, I don't think my own, you know, my own survival, that never bothered me as much as the responsibility of, of keeping my my men alive and performing the mission. No, 100%. And, and I actually had a psychologist review my book who just, she pointed out, like, there seems to be a theme here. And it was me kept saying that my my only fear, the only fear I ever experienced, and again, I'm not correlating my experiences to Ukraine, but my only fear ever was failure, as in failing the men that I knew I was responsible for failing them as a leader, I never feared explosions, firefights. No, it, it just kept repeating. I didn't realize how many times I were repeating in every position I was in. That was my fear, was both an imposter syndrome of knowing that I didn't know the job because that's almost baked into the system um, and and also the the complete a crippling fear of failure, uh, of failure to do my job in this overall system. And, and, and that job, it, of course, is a responsibility for bringing people home. I got a funny story about that, John. I, I was uh, early in my career sw- swimming up on a beach in Nicaragua in the moonlight, and I was crawling ashore, and I thought, shouldn't James Bond be doing this? Nice. Because no, I, I was back. 24 years <laughs> old. <laughs> I thought they should have sent somebody else. Well, maybe they shouldn't. Maybe they sent the right person, Chuck. Uh, Dr. Nick. Well, I... uh, so a few things. One, um, Colonel Spencer had mentioned something about how uh, one thing that he was noticing now is that they're recruiting for like specific like subunits. Um, and he thought that was interesting. And um, I just thought I would mention that I've seen that too, like specifically with some of the un- um, the battalions that I follow, the Chechen battalions, um, for example, uh, the Dudayev battalion, uh, they have the Atom Group, um, and that's a um, sabotage and reconnaissance, um, sort of like a specific subgroup, right? Um, and they have been recruiting specifically uh, separately uh, from the Dudai Battalion uh, and the um, battalion named after Sheikh Mansour. Um, I forget what this one is called, but it's a um, 
like they it's like an aerial battalion uh but it's drones specifically uh so it's like a drone operating unit um a variety of different types of drones uh that they operate Mm -hmm. and um they've been recruiting for that one as well and so i just thought i would mention that because um uh, specifically the aerial one is more recent and uh, i thought that was kind of interesting and then um uh, colonel spencer also mentioned the uh phrase you know in relation to Ukraine specifically, that uh, time, the one aspect of time not being on their side, and he said that, uh, mentioned the phrase politics by other means, and that uh, perceptions of performance is a problem. And this kind of, for me, really underscores the importance of getting getting the story right, right? Um, And why it's really important for um, different, um, you know, and it's not just one outlet or two, you know, there's multiple media outlets that are getting the um, uh, framing and, um, you know, understanding of what's actually happening wrong. Uh, And that is, a big problem, right? Because especially when we're talking about, um, you know, this war, uh, I feel like they have a really huge responsibility to get that right because, um, you know, they can shape that perception, not only in the public, um, but policymakers say, you know, who we know, there are some of them who don't really want to support Ukraine. They can point to that reporting as sources to use against that funding, right? And so, um, I think that, uh, you know, that's just another sort of point to kind of make. Um, and then just moving along, uh, Yehuda had mentioned something in relation to how a pilot needs to know multiple jobs in case they have to take over. I think he said something like a gunner position or something like that in the plane. And it kind of reminded me and I guess kind of loops into also um, what Colonel Spencer had mentioned in relation to sort of basic soldiering about, uh, you know, like in the Marines, and I know it's the same in, you know, Navy, whatever, um, uh, Army, um, Air Force, you know, that it doesn't matter what your MOS is, right? You know, you, like in the Marines, uh, we called it knowledge. (laughs) You know, you sit there with that green book, and you learn it, and you're falling asleep. And, you know, uh, you you work on both your individual training, um, as and, um, you know, that uh, with that green book, that knowledge book and the schoolhouse and all that stuff. Um, and but that knowledge was so broad that it really didn't matter, like what your MOS was like. Everybody still has to have those basic soldiering skills so that no matter what, that you could um, become part of the infantry, you know, at the squad level. Um, and that would get practiced in the field. Right. Um, and, uh, you had to be proficient with the M16A2, the M9 in my case, swim quals in my case, not necessarily in the army. I don't think, um, field medicine, all that stuff, because you never know. Right. Um, uh, you know, you're operating, say in the fleet Marine Corps or whatever in peacetime and, that's the way it is until it's not right. You're doing your specific job, even if it's the war 
until suddenly you're not anymore. And suddenly, you know, the back line is the front line. <laughs> um, and suddenly you're having to pick up a gun and defend, you know, a position. Um, so uh, I just thought I would throw that in there as well. And that's all I have. Uh, John, go ahead. No, 100%. Dr. Ford actually reminded me of, you know, all these things, again, you, you take for granted. And I really wish I agree with you that, and, and it's really funny if I watch somebody on TV, as somebody who's been through that experience, I don't do it much more. And I was kind of giving the pivot redirect that when they have this tagline that they want to run with, right? This news that everybody's covering, the story, this framing of a situation. And they invite you on. And sometimes they'll say, okay, what is your, here's the question, what is your, answer to this question and sometimes they don't you can really tell when like general hodges goes on a show and he, they ask him okay this and, and you could i don't agree with that and he goes in a different direction because he has such tacit knowledge of the complexity of the problem and and possibilities and, and across the echelon i love that but also when dr ford and i put this in my post today about how again i love things that help explain the complex but that Soldiering is about knowledge, which is just Dion Bloom's taxonomy is really the lowest, lowest level, right? Everybody needs to know this or they can't even do, you know, the adapting, the synthesizing, the analysis, all this stuff, base knowledge stuff. And that knowledge is by every position. In every position you move to, there's a new base knowledge that you have to learn. And then there's skills, right? We have these books and they're every soldier in the U.S. Army has to and there's like a hundred skill level one private, doesn't matter who you are, you need to be able to do these things. And it's standardized and it's actually, you know, training management, you take off. Yes, that person can low crawl. This person can high crawl. This person can do a three to five second rush. And you, the sergeant validates these hundred skills that at that level, somebody has determined they person needs to do. And then lastly, there's abilities. So if you take a formation, any West, any military formation and say, okay, this is what it usually looks like, a private with less than a year of service, a, a private first class with two years, a specialist with four years, uh, a basic sergeant with five to six years, you know, and you go up the rank and you have a decade, if not multiple decades of experience in the very lowest level basic formation. Now compare that to a Ukrainian or a Russian formation right now, and you lined up that formation and it would be in many situations, and there are some veterans left, absolutely, but it would be one year in that position. And I wish people understood that as, and, and really it gets frustrating that we can all watch the war, right? We can watch trench assaults. We can watch um, a, a vehicle maneuver like, do you really under, do you get that that everybody has less than a year, or some? You know, there's variations. There's no standardization in what would be approached. And again, like we said at the beginning of this conversation, this has happened to other militaries. You know, the fact to mobilize a million men, but the and we talked. I talked to you about this in another in another conversation this morning. Um, this is where the nation state has to create the institutional pipeline to mobilize and standardize to feed the system and just because of the nature of uh, trying to save Ukraine that didn't happen but that doesn't mean it can't happen uh, uh, John you know just talking about General Hodges 
I want to remind everyone, uh, General Ben Hodges uh, will be with us tomorrow, Wednesday, August 16, uh, 2 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, and I hope, John, you join us. Chuck, I hope you join us too. Yehuda, I know you'll be with us at that time as well. Well, Alan, I just had to just jump in. I noticed just when Chuck mentioned something, he said, and by the way, do come tomorrow for General Hodges. You don't always get him. He's super busy. Uh, a Truly a pleasure to listen to. I could He could read a menu to me and I'd be interested. Something about his voice. Um, <laughs> Chuck mentioned I didn't get a chance to interrupt. Uh, just what we were swimming towards the beach in Nicaragua. And it, you know, it really reminded me once when I was swimming up on the beach at San Martin. And I got out of the water and I had a margarita and then I went upstairs to the room. Dad, so. <laughs> so kind, kind, bad, kind of, bad. Can I just say bad, bad, bad dad jokes? Can I just say, James, and um, for uh, every child, I've had their hands up for probably five million years. And of course, um, bearded Brit, too. Uh, thanks, Dr. Nick. Yehuda, a different kind of mission. Uh, James, a bearded for every child, please. Uh, yes, it's been so long. I've evolved into a higher alien self. So uh, um, I am really want to thank everybody here because <clears throat> um, the advancement of my uh, understanding of what is going on in terms of war and everything has been shaped very much by the kind of the expert panel who are kind of our guests tonight. And thank you, Chuck and John, especially Dr. Nick Yehuda. I'm thinking of you especially. Um, Alan? Prince, all the other hosts, you guys have learned so much now that you're really serving, um, you know, even even some, I'll, I'll say some parroting, but I don't think it's just parroting. I think that you're, you've learned the underlying principles. And so there's been so much learning here. And it, uh, what I wanted to say about it was, this is a way I think Maria Port is like a military, if you will. And that is, is that a lot of the coherence of the group and its power is that I think there's a good, clear understanding and support of the overall mission of the whole thing. And that, you know, clearly um, Ukrainians are focused by their life and death um, situation that they're in. And so, uh, but, but I guess the question I wanted to ask, and I, I was thinking of you, John, mostly, but anybody, I think uh, any of you could answer this. Um, and that is about um, leadership. And I think you alluded to this, John, about just the ability to do that, you know, after action review or whatever it is, but you start to do it in your head and you can start to see um, what's going on. And I think that uh, one of the heroes um, from fiction that I like the best is Jack Aubrey. And, you know, like any captain back in the Napoleonic War, they had a, the quarterdeck to walk up and down and not be disturbed so they could sit there or walk there and think about it and really think. And so I wanted to ask about um, that tie to introspection and uh, leadership. And uh, I'll leave it there. And if you wanted to ruin the whole thing um, and talk about professionalism, can it still support the draft in uh, the modern world? Um, that'd be another thought. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. That's a great, and I agree with you, uh, Alan and all the hosts evolution and their learning has been um, inspiring. And I can, 
the way that Alan asks his questions, uh, learning Ukrainian words, uh, it, it's all fascinating for me. As I just, I try to just drop in and listen, and I, um, and I sometimes like tonight, it almost feels like I just entered the bar and we all just started talking, and um, I feel really bad for all the hands who've gone up, kind of in the system. I, I come in like, ah, screw the system, let's just talk. Uh, and then have, you know, passing drinks around and it's almost cathartic for me. So to answer your question, a hundred percent, and it is something that leader, and I'm not a leadership expert, right? I'm just a student of, of urban warfare, but the number one thing I was continuously told is step one of leading any formation is assessing. And especially if you're coming in as a new leader, like, and I, I write this in my book, and it was just something that was drilled into me. Is like you don't come in and say, "This is the way I do things. This is the way we're going to do things. This is the way you should be doing things." Is there is this? Um, you know, other people have in leadership theory. There's there's the Tuxman's theory of Storm and Norman forming all this stuff. Step one always has to be that assessing what is going on, right? And that's why I think the ARs and all that stuff is not just for the unit, but other leaders could, like Chuck was talking about, you come in and to a new battles race, you take the old units, reflections of their experience and performance. So absolutely, and I think the core that is part, I actually got this wrong, and I talk about it in my book all the time. I mean, I made as many mistakes as I got anything, right? I probably made way more mistakes in my own experiences, and that just allows me to criticize myself, is that I didn't stop to think I was I understood assessing the problems but I didn't give myself enough time to do the reflection especially um, when you talk about enemy um, there's so much in thinking about the enemy that is drained into you especially as an officer where you're assessing your formation but you're also assessing what the the evolution of the enemy and how important that is, and, and uh, especially the Western military has had this real problem with can do and will do, and um, it, it's almost a vicious cycle that I didn't learn until the end of my career about, like, of course, every, there's always something to do. There's always something that can be done, but there has to be time for this reflection. So I 100% agree with you. Uh, you know, I don't want to go into the, the draft. I do think the draft works, but you have it's the draft into this um, – filling into the professionalization, like, like Ukraine has experienced when it initially, I agree with that statement. When it initially filled in, it was filling in with a lot of veterans. Um, a lot of people were commanders who had been commanders in the ATO and other aspects of that. That skeleton is a big part of what you can do, but you can rapidly um, adjust to that with all the things we've been talking about today, with the institutional base, with the standardization of the processes that allow somebody to rapidly figure things out. Um, with with pamphlets, with doctrine, with uh, learning uh, processes, there are ways to address mass mobilization. Absolutely, and I think it's, it can still be done. Absolutely. Uh, thank you, James. Yeah, thank uh, you. You know, I want to go to Bearded Brit, then to Forever Child, and then Chuck. If we have time, I want to make a stop with JDAMS uh, at Velika Novosilka and in Bakhmut, uh, Bearded. Hello, everybody. Uh, greetings from the Big Island, as ever. Uh, 
fascinating conversation. I'm glad I've been able to jump in on it. Um, what Chuck and John and Yehuda and others are saying, totally true. About the regimental system, the, the amount of knowledge that's contained within a regiment that is passed on almost by osmosis through the chain of command. And I just made a quick observation. Although promotion ranks are slightly different from army to army, one thing that doesn't generally change, um, and I'm re reflecting upon my time serving with the British Army, is that for somebody to be considered an expert, it's about nine, ten thousand hours. Now, if I map that onto a young soldier's career, nine, ten thousand hours is going to be about five years, six years of doing stuff. And one thing for Chuck there. If you select a military career, you select a learning career because you never stop learning. Because at that sort of 10,000-hour point, five, six years into a junior soldier's career, he's being looked at seriously, if not already, to take on a junior command position. Now, in the British Army for the Armoured Corps, at the five, six-year point, we're talking about being corporal level and going away on a career course lasting four to five months to actually command a Challenger tank. But the requisite knowledge that we talk about Bloom's taxonomy is that those previous five years, he's learned everything to do with that combat platform and also the context in which it is applied so that when he becomes part of the command chain, he is able to apply all his experience within the context of what he's doing. And it's vitally important as I see these Ukrainian units being formed up and now they've had coming up to nine months working together, especially on armour, I'm expecting to see uh, unit cohesion coming together and hopefully overcoming some of those difficulties you said, John, that if you haven't got a regimental system and you're trying to build a battalion or a regiment from scratch, it's very difficult because you haven't got that historical knowledge and experience that is passed on from uh, appointment to appointment over. You know, I always like to frame this a little bit and people talking about the offensive and, and, and we're, we're naturally we're unpacking some some growing pains here in the Ukrainian army. But you, you, you think about the United States Army. Let's let's call it 1943. Right. It was not at its optimum. It was not at its peak performance. And it faced almost every single one of the problems we're talking about and and yet it overcame it uh and uh it's it's a constant evolution in 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 these forces look look how much the tactics have changed so ukraine isn't just sort of kind of developing its own you know its own armed forces and coming and come you know putting together these forces and learning to command them and optimize their training but john look how much the tactics have changed look in this first war of the 21st century how much the how much the technology has changed and and already how much ukraine has taught the world right I mean, I, you know, I, I helped dissect that that disastrous Russian Russian crossing at the at Severodonetsk River about a year ago. You know, U.S. Army Tradoc says, "Send us your stuff." You know, we we want to succeed like Ukraine, 
And we want to make sure that our crossings don't go as badly as this Russian crossing. And Ukraine has brought drones into every rifle squad. Everything that they're doing, you know, they've taken over the Black Sea and they don't have a Navy. Well, they haven't taken it over, but they're certainly at a naval naval point of stasis with the Russian uh, Russian naval forces and they don't have a Navy. So that's what's so interesting. You know, they're doing all of this. They, sure, they've got some teething pains, but a lot of us are sitting back and watching and learning not only from their progress, but, you know, they're teaching us. I 100% agree. And I think there, I have significant issues to all these problems with the self-imposed political restrictions to placing other militaries, not in a fighting role, but in the observation or advisory. I know that's a slippery slope. Um, combat observer role, uh, you know, even informing, and there's been lots of proposition on what can make the training going on outside of the country better is to send people you know that there's a cycle of learning is not just with the soldiers but the trainers um, i have frustration with that it wasn't always that way you know, from the the foreign observers of our own civil war to you you name it there is a process of learning that is now because war is politics um and risk and there's issues there i 100 percent agree with bearded's um comments a hundred percent and actually and i don't want anybody saying this is john smitcher talking about the american uh, western system better than anybody else's system this is a military history analysis of the things that have evolved and are known to work um and the an example is that the napoleon staff system is the system that we current most Militaries around the world currently have the admit you know, the all the nomenclatures, the intelligence guy, the administration guy, the logistics guy that wasn't around before Napoleon, but it worked so well more than any other system that it was adopted. Uh, so a lot of the things we're talking about are hidden military things that all militaries across time, from Caesar to Ukraine have had to have to increase effectiveness of combat formations from learning cycles to um, even tactics. So, you know, this is my big issue with, there's a whole field of study called uh, revolution of military affairs. And Dr. Ford probably knows about this. And when people say that major changes in warfare have the character of warfare have happened. And my, the guy who I usually go to Ukraine with has a PhD in, um, military innovation and the difference between the word of innovation and adaptability. For me, just as an old grunt, you adapt from a known point. So when you ask the Ukrainian, you say Ukrainian military is just not adapting to the conditions. Uh, uh, that means that there was a starting point in which they shifted from, and, and they're not going from their starting point to the shifting point. Um, when I usually see people that the U.S. military had this huge thing for literally like ten years, it's, you know, it just adaptability. There's all these buzzwords we use, right? And adaptability in soldiers—that's what you build. You don't know what the future is going to be. You're just going to build adaptability. Adaptability isn't making shit up as you go. Adaptability is shifting from a known point, like you know a tactic that works, and you see in this situation it doesn't, so you modify it based on the tactic that had worked so many times previously 
and you adapt from a known point. You're not making shit up, which is usually when people say adaptability, that they're actually, they do not, you know, the whole thing about the guy doesn't know what he's doing and all this stuff. Like you want him to adapt, you want him to make stuff up. Yeah, John, that's, that is absolutely the truth. You don't, you don't, you know, you can improvise. And as we used to say, situation dictates, but right. It, it isn't just trying everything and you get back to that loop, right? You train to mission and you debrief, you debrief after the mission and you, you seek everywhere to optimize. But one of those other things, and I'm glad you brought up Napoleon and, uh, you know, Another thing that works within that system that the West has adopted is delegating tactical authority down, right down to the assistant fire team leader, you know, briefing commander's intent and delegating tactical authority downward. And of course, you know, that requires trust, right? If you're going to delegate mission prosecution down the chain of command, you want to make sure that you're putting it in worthy hands and that goes right back up to who did you train, you know, who taught them and what do you want them to know? And although that sounds simple, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's complex in the execution. hundred percent. And that's another hot topic where you have somebody who joins the military, like Beard has said, has been in the military for like three years, four years. Like you don't trust me. You're not giving me the authority to execute stuff. Like, um, one, I have to have an understanding of your competence in the execution of all the, the massive mission. It isn't just, just tell me what you want to happen and I'll make it happen. Like, no, there has to be a shared understanding in uh, a lot of things and a shared understanding of competence and levels. And this is why, you know, forming the formation like, like the regimental system and you know people, you like, I, I trust you. I don't trust you. I don't mean I don't fight with you, but you're your skills, knowledge, and abilities just aren't to the, if I give you this mission, I don't know if it'll be accomplished without, that's the risk calculation that commander's responsibility is. But I used to get that same thing with adaptability. And my, you you just tell me what you want to happen. Like, no, no, I'm going to give you a a five paragraph opera. I'm going to tell you what the course of action is going to be. I'm going to, that's my duty and responsibility. Stop telling me just to give you the, what I want to happen. Like, that's not the way this works. Uh, and the, the other, and the other thing to always remember is, look, you got a plan, and you go in, and the first the first casualty of action is your plan. It always is. So yeah. then you come down to that right. What what am I trained to? And I hate to sound like you know Vince Lombardi, but then it comes down to the fundamentals, right? Tackling and blocking, it, right? You you got it. And the other thing is right. Return fire and hit the deck. Fire maneuver. Like I actually, and I, this isn't a joke, uh, Chuck. I, from, from once I understood it, I fought a squad the same way I fought a platoon, the same way I fought a company and had a few times. Um, but if you understand the basics of fire and maneuver, that is com- maneuver warfare. As in somebody's covering you while you maneuver, then you can actually fight echelons of formations if you understand the basics tackling and blocking and that the plan is exactly chuck that's the other issue of um the plan that's why planning and we aren't even talking about people miss over this like the ukrainian staffs and the and the 
training and education, the staffs have gone into planning because yeah, units on that mission, like what was the plan? And then they actually, you know, the learning process, because it isn't a failure to adapt if there wasn't a plan. It was, if the plan was Leroy Jenkins and just assault, that's a method that is under what we call a time constraint. And that's why SOPs are so important. But if the plan is to Leroy Jenkins it, you're not adapting, you're making it up. It, 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 exactly. You know, and it goes back to just those, you know, the, 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 I don't know, we keep saying fundamentals, but it's just, you know, it's, it's things you learned as a cadet. It's things that you approach your first unit unit with it's things you, but, but you know, most of it, John, I think you'd agree. It's sort of on the job training that is enforced by learning the leadership and always, you know, you have to become a scholar of this stuff. Every successful officer, NCO I've ever known, look, you read into this. And, so this is the, you know, I, 100%, this is the example I give you, Chuck, from my last visit. I, I was talking to the Ukrainian military about building trenches. Just because I had had my own experience of asking my own military, okay, where's the doctrine in which I would, as a self-learner, go to to understand the specifics of how to build a trench um, and, and they just start, you know, the, the, they give me the, what they've learned over the last year. Right. But, you know, World War One, there, this was a, both a science and an art of massive trench complexes and massive trench with all these key aspects of every trench, you know, the, the curves because of the grenades and the, um, the, the certain level of burden, that's gone from my military. Um, I don't, I want to, it is standardized. It, you can guarantee from the aerial footage that somebody went out to Russian formations and handed them a product. They didn't get that symmetry. Uh, so in self-learning, it isn't the institution didn't teach me this. You look towards doctrine or you go searching. Uh, and I, in my own military, doesn't have what Ukraine is learning and unfortunately, this is the burden of being a researcher. It's like people die from a, something they didn't know that is known. And that's a, a le- that isn't a lesson learned. That's a lesson relearned. That is a failure of the institution to provide that information, that knowledge before, even though you're not going to be trained in it, but in this cycle. So you know, the handbook for building trenches should be uh, already created over the last year. I know the British have a, a, a very old version of that. The U.S. military deleted it. It's gone. You can't find it. Not in our engineer corps. Nothing. Uh, even though I remember like digging in the 90s, it's gone. And this is the problem with big militaries as well is that you, you have to go back pretty far. And even though this tactic is has a new spin to it, um, that's an example of in the Ukrainian military, there should already be standardization on the digging and construction of trench lines for certain types of formation from individual to brigade division. It, it's yeah, that, me, go ahead, Chuck. Oh, no, go please go ahead, Ellie. I was just going to say, it strikes me, John, uh, as a lesson relearned uh, because it has been lost, but is needed. Uh, and it's needed from experience on the battlefield right now. 
Uh, Chuck? Yeah, John, I was just saying, and in my first combat deployment, I, I suddenly found as a Navy SEAL that I had to dig, I had to dig a fortification, right? And I, I did what you did, but, you know, fortunately back then I still was able to get a hold of a pub. But, you know, I had to learn it on the spot, right? All of a sudden we had to, I needed a fighting, I needed a, a series of fighting positions. You know, wow, uh, I'm glad we had that. It was a naval naval warfare publication. It, was, it, it still exists. And it was corny, but, you know, I was a training officer for, you know, a, a duty assignment. And we used to say the naval warfare publications are written in blood. And as a SEAL, especially, you could deviate from the naval warfare publication if you won. If you won. But if you put it in the ditch and you ignored the NWP, then you were going to swing for it. So, uh, you know, and, and it's one that's one part of the military where, you know, we, we encourage innovation. Uh, we encourage, uh, improv improvisation on the battlefield, but you've got to just have those, you know, you've got to have the fundamentals. And you remind me of, of, uh, general Mattis's quote, right? The, the chaos, uh, who said that doctrine is a refuge of the, you know, basically the stupid because the doctrine that somebody who's going to just do what the doctrine says, Versus somebody who knows what's in the doctrine, knows when it applies, or knows when they need to adapt from it. But people take it to doctrine is useless when that's not – that is – you know, Mad Dog was one of the most learned and self-learning generals of our time who absolutely wasn't – that's not what he meant. But he was meaning that you have to study, learn, adapt, uh, and not rely on something and be so dogmatic that you won't – adapt to what's in a book now. I'm like, no, I need to go back farther. I need to go back a hundred years to field manuals that were talking about the, you know, the, the trench building. If that's, you know, that's an example, but hundred percent agree with you. Yeah. And you know, in my own career, I was able to see improvisational tactics that were used in combat that made it into the Naval special Naval warfare publications. You know, so novel solutions to to problems on the battlefield, which became doctrinal uh, doctrinal uh, tactics, you know, and that was, you know, that that showed me that, doc, you know, at least in our community, the doctrine was a living thing, which it always should be. You know, what what, what I'm going to give you some tools and these are tools that work most of the time. But, you know, not every time. And, you know, you are here to execute commander's intent and we have delegated tactical authority to you. And, you know, a lot of times in my, when I was a junior officer, I mean, I had, there was no reason to fail because I had every asset that I could possibly ask for, at least in my community, it would be brought to bear. Right. I had I had drones. I had air. I had naval gunfire. I had all sorts of transportation. I had, you know, insertion platforms. I had all kinds of stuff. But that even almost put more weight on me, John, you know, because I was just like you. I didn't I, I didn't care if I lived or died. I cared if I failed. And that's what kept me, you know, I don't know. It made me a better officer eventually, I think. hundred percent. And I think this is the. 
the the burden of understanding when everybody wants to talk about tactics right now and not understanding that tactics fits into a system of professionalization doctrine um, a learning cycle like even uh, how fast a doc a doctrinal publication because there's there's different differences in doctrine right there's a way of fighting and there's a kind of doctrine small d within the books and then there's tactics techniques and procedure it all is interconnected so this isn't my again my frustration that, that some of the challenges of ukraine isn't just about their equipping oh that's a huge problem it isn't just about their training it isn't about them failing to adapt to tactics it's much more complex to that it's, um it, it, for all the reasons that we're kind of reminiscing about right now that i wish influencers understood when they're making perceptions like dr four said about the way ahead um and i'm you know i come to the maria report to learn about the, the bullet reports and the daily fighting but just you know, on the macro level, the way ahead, there are some massive challenges that aren't as simple as saying that you know, Western tactics aren't working. Oh, so a doctrine is not catechism. In other words, uh, you have a question, we have the answer. A doctrine is adaptable. But John, you have met uh, Ukrainian commanding officers uh, who have that adaptability. Uh, yes. Yes. I mean, like General Saboka, which I didn't meet um, the deputy commander of territorial defense, but I heard from his uh, chief of staff every initiative that he's trying to emplace from standard operating procedures, uh, standardized training uh, cycle, uh, formations and order of movements. is like, that officer understands it. I mean, the... the the, the parts that were surprising and somewhat disheartening was my, my not understanding how many of these systems that I take for granted in other militaries, even in historical analysis of uh, peer competition, aren't necessarily in place, like uh, the AARs, like the feedback of the institutional platform to the frontline formation, or like um, the interchanging of units on the fly from like territorial defense, uh, naval infantry, uh, the Ukrainian army, uh, and piecemealing together out of necessity, but, but how that won't work for communication reasons, for standardization of um, knowledge, proficiency, duties, responsibilities of officers. Um, I was, again, that's not why I was there to research, but uh, I met both officers that get it, but also officers who are faced with a massive defense reform, a massive military mobilization, which there are still processes that actually slow the system down. And they're only like, for instance, um, and this is, again, Ukraine is doing what it has to do in surviving despite what they haven't been given, is that you know some of the you can call them Soviet things, but things like um, requesting for equipment or materials has to be physically stamped with a, a piece of paper has to be stamped. Uh, and it usually has to have three levels of stamps, like physical, like there is a stamp. 
that has to have this paper has to be stamped for this unit to receive these resupplies. And, and, and sometimes that's a, a commanding officer who is, you know, in a, you know, forward in a position somewhere. So that supply won't get ordered. And these are, these are anecdotal. This isn't my research, but it's an example of understanding the, the sheer complexity of all that we talk about every day when we see stuff on TV is they still require stamps on pieces of paper to get things to units in need. Uh, and, and that's, that's a, that's a challenge for sure. Yeah. That sounds like a big challenge to me. Uh, no question about that uh, to forever child. Uh, and then Chuck, uh, John, uh, let's try to take a look at the last two maps. Uh, forever child. I, I, I will actually stop uh, taking over Chuck's bullet points after ever child who survived. <laughs> You are not taking it over, brother. You are welcome here 24 7. So like I said, I'm I walk glad into to have my, you. My veterans, you know, BFW American Legions pull up to the bar. <laughs> I'm like, let's take over the conversation. Uh, no, I, 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 I like that. I, I like that analogy because that's what this place is. Yeah. You know, that's what this place is. And uh, yeah. I, I am always happen, happy to have you on board, man. Always. Yeah, and, and John, you can't leave now. You have to close the bar with us. Come on. Uh, exactly. I, I, We're closing this joint. If you guys knew the <laughs> podcast editing I was supposed to be doing it for the last hour and a half. But I, I, uh, I just, I'm so passionate about this. It, uh, this it, is what, it, it is what this place is like. This is, this is like a, a page out of my childhood as I laid on the floor on a, a, a pallet blanket to, and listened to a room full of officers and their wives go on all until the wee hours uh, I, i'm so honored and and uh, uh privileged to to be a, allowed to speak and i want to be extremely brief because uh i i don't want to to take a great deal of time but there um, um chuck i i so appreciated what you said about as a junior officer uh realizing that there was so much, so much that you didn't know yet, and uh, that, of course, is in a very important quality of leadership. Um, I would like to uh, have a, a just, just lightly do a paradigm shift away from uh, from um, army and army and navy, uh, and and perhaps marines as well, not entirely. Um, to um, Army Air Corps in 1942, where a young airman going to flight school only had a few, whatever the length of flight school training was in 1942 before the war um, <clears throat> with uh, his flight instructor. And then that, that fast forwarded back 10 or 12 years. But in the meantime, right after flight school, uh, uh, a staff sergeant uh, was handed paperwork at following a flight, and the staff sergeant was very polite with his first word. He said, sir. And there wasn't, as far as I could tell, a single polite word uttered after that. He said, you're going to be a dead man if you keep turning in papers <laughs> like this. <laughs> and there was one-on-one -on -one tutoring with that staff sergeant for however long it took for the, for the uh, junior officer 
to master the art of paperwork. And that art of paperwork was mastered to the level where he qualified to be a test pilot. And that kept him out of, out of the battle for World War II as a test pilot. He was, he was working on the things necessary to uh, 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 forward the Manhattan Project. But if you forward that back... Wow. Yes. Uh, you, you forward that another 10 or 12 years, the flight instructor had not seen this junior officer any other time during their entire service. And all he had was the trust established during flight school and the, the military record the junior officer had established. By then, the junior officer was a captain and the flight instructor was a colonel. Um, the, uh, they, the, the colonel had called upon him to become an operations officer in Korea with no battle experience. Uh, these, these men were virtually strangers to each other except for the, the time that they had bonded in flight training. Um, and the, the, the duties that fell to the, uh, to the captain included um, investigating every aircraft for every branch of service. So it would have included Navy and Marine, I think, if the Marines were flying in Korea. Um, and so he went from no battle experience to actually negotiating whatever it took to communicate with every branch of service that, that touched his duties uh, to deal with uh, airplanes, uh, ground crews and, and uh, pilots from, from all those different services. Uh, and so I, I understand the, the, the bonding and the, and the blending of, of, of uh, brotherhood within the Army and the uh, Marines. But that wasn't possible in the Air Force to, the, to a very great extent. And um, I so appreciate that the, uh, uh, the, the Air Force that's going to be rapidly developing in Ukraine is going to have a different experience than what the Army uh, or Marines have. And, and the, the leadership will will look a little different. And that's all I had to say on that. Uh, I, I, I didn't have a specific question, but I did want to, to, uh, to interject that, that, uh, I, I just, I, I just want to say thank you for every child. Uh, we don't know how quickly the Ukrainian air force will be developed. We only know it has to be developed very quickly. Exactly. Exactly. And, and they will have the leadership they need as that happens. I think but, they will. Thank, thank you, you so very much. Slava Ukraine. Harom Slava. Uh, so Chuck, uh, on the way to Velika Novosilka, I want to take a quick stop uh, at uh, JDAMs uh, because uh, JDAMs deployed by Ukraine have made a significant difference uh, in the advance in Velika Novosilka. They really did. There was uh, an airstrike a uh, couple of days ago. I I generally don't uh, get 
really specific granular data on where Ukraine delivers the airstrikes, but in this case, we actually had video of it. Uh, the battle space here, of course, every, everybody pretty much knows uh, Velika Novosilka, uh, the T0518 highway going, going south down the Mokriyali River, River Valley. Uh, that is both the axis of advance and the line of communication. Uh, the Mokriyali River uh, meanders uh, back and forth and crosses the highway in a couple of places. Uh, but going south from Velika Novoslika, we're looking at right now uh, Staromyansky and Eurozane. Uh, which Ukraine has liberated, but the breakthrough came. Uh, Staromyansky is on one on the west side of the river, uh, Eurozani on the other, uh, with the T0518 highway in between them. And Ukraine uh, located, this looks like an agricultural storage building, not so much a, uh, a barn, looked like a place that was probably a tractor repair facility uh they were able to pinpoint uh that as the sector command for the russian forces and they smoked it with a jdam uh jdam is a 2000 pound bomb folks dumb bomb uh it has a bolt-on kit on it uh unlike the jdam er or the small diameter bomb which deploy flight surfaces, wings, the the JDAM has strakes. These are just sort of aerodynamic shapes that are bolted on to the bomb. And uh, its tail fins are are maneuverable. But what's remarkable about this this strike on the on the center here in uh Urozani, um you cre- the the JDAM itself is is not very maneuverable. The weapons release envelope is is kind of this narrow triangle off the nose of the aircraft. And in order to lob the bomb, these Ukrainian strike aviation strike missions have got to come in at about 100 feet, pop up to probably, well, I'm not going to say the altitude, but they have got to pop up, release the bomb on a sort of lobbed parabola in this case, and then it gets vectored down. Now they can they can, depending on the JDAM kit, it can be either a laser illuminated target, or it can fly to a, a to a GPS coordinate. But these, you know, in a, in Afghanistan, you could call in a JDAM, and the guy's rotating around at uh, you know thirty thousand feet, and he pickles the location and he drops the bomb. But but in the case of the Ukrainian pilots, they don't have anything like air parity. So in order not to get shot down, it it requires this incredible uh, act of heroism on the part of the Ukrainian pilots flying in low and hot and popping up and delivering this strike. But this was a perfect example of of air and ground coming together together. and Ukraine uh, being opportunistic enough, when this, when this, you know, when they, this multi-company Russian task element was decapitated, when its command was taken out, Ukrainians 
instantly pressed the attack. And again, nothing coincidental here, right? As John was saying, they weren't just throwing stuff out and seeing what happened. They were ready to follow up on that JDAM strike instantly. And there's this weird thing that happens on battlefields. I know John has seen this as well. You're fighting it out, and then a 2,000-pound bomb goes off. And all of a sudden, everything stops. You get these big explosions, and everybody stops shooting. And they all kind of look around like, whoa. You might hear a couple people going, whoa, if it was the explosion was on your side. But the Ukrainians were able to push forward, dislodge the Russians. And because the Russians, this is all about the TO518 highway. When the Russians were dislodged, they went down the fill-in-the-blank TO518 highway right into an ongoing or just beginning Ukrainian artillery barrage where improved conventional munitions were used, cluster bombs, taking out the vehicles as they fled. And Ukraine was is now pushing down south past Eurozane towards uh, Zavitny Brajanya. So this is a battle ongoing. Uh, again, what time is it? It's, uh, do, 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 what is it there? It's uh, just, I don't know, it's five 520 there. So sun's getting ready to come up. I'm sure Ukraine had a very uh, fruitful night of operations. And we're seeing uh, great progress here uh, south of uh, Velika Novosilica. So how is the Mokri uh, Yali River uh, to Ukraine's advantage that they can move down both the left bank and the right bank uh, and the right bank uh, and, and cut off Russian forces here? Yeah, the, when you when you've got an enemy who has got to straddle a river, right, they they aren't completely interoperable. And this isn't a very big river, but it is a barrier uh, to vehicles. And Ukraine is now pushing back on both sides. Uh, if you look closely at the inset there, you can see there is a there is a bridge uh, that was south of Eurozene and uh, just north of uh, Zavatny. Uh, and Ukraine has already got that under fire. So this means that it's, Russia is going to have a problem coordinating its forces on either side of the river. Uh, the thing that has happened, I can't remember this, this map, again, in the days of me putting maps up, uh, and I mean D-A-Z-E, uh, the advances uh, on the west side of the Mokriyali River occurred Ukrainian forces are actually in contact south of, of Zavodny. Uh, you can see that little net net uh, network of, of roads there. I would not be surprised tomorrow morning that bridge uh, to the north of, of Zavodny will be in Ukrainian hands. They are already in combat at the north end of the village. So this has been a town-by-town fight going going south of of uh Velika Novoslika. I mean uh Stor uh, Storzone, Blahodante, uh Marakriva, 
Staromayaski, uh, Eurozane, these are these are all towns, one after another, Ukraine pushing south. Um, this is going to come in again. The next, the next place Russia is, and, and the place right now that they are fortifying, is uh, Staromalinkva, which is uh, the next town down. Coincidentally, the next, not coincidentally, the next bridge down. Uh, another place to watch, though, to the west. Uh, Prayutune. Uh, there was no contact there today. This is a town south of Rivnopil. Uh, there was no contact there today, but that north-south road is a place where Ukraine is moving forces. So you can see that if Ukraine presses there to the west of the T0518 highway, you, Russia is is has got the river that it has to deal with. So these are these are the places that Ukraine is going to push, you know, push the different keys on the piano, and they're dictating the pace and place of battle. Uh, Chuck, that was a quick look at Velika Novosilka. Yeah, I think a lot of people are interested in Bakhmut, the next map in the nest. Uh, let's go there, uh, and here again is another example uh, of how Ukraine is choosing the time and place of battle, uh, succeeding both to the north, and so this is up in the Solodar uh, region, uh, and to the south, Klyushika. Uh, uh, you know, Bakhmut continues to be a place of Ukrainian success. Yeah, it really does. So, uh, again, by, by tracking... Uh, Russian fire missions, uh, very interesting development. Uh, Russians called in a fire mission on Bakhmutsky, which is south and east of Solodar. Uh, the line of contact to the north of Solodar has been really pretty permeable uh, and, and a little hard to pin down. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, Ukraine doesn't always uh, come out with a lot of military information. I will speak frankly, they don't always report uh, their reverses. In fact, they almost never do. But almost as often, they hide their lantern under a bushel basket, as a famous guy once said. They don't always report their successes. So there has been reports of contacts south of Rozo uh, Livka, and reports of contact in the hills north of Solodar. But what happened now, and piecing it together from Russian fire missions, a Ukrainian raiding force came down the T-13, uh, T-1302 highway. They were in contact south of Bakhmutsky. So this is well south of Solodar. Uh, we don't know if this was a raid, are, or if they're going to remain in contact here. But this was a pretty deep penetration here. This was a multi-kilometer uh, jaunt south of the, of the zero line. And not coincidentally, this, this is one of the places that we had, we had talked, to, talked about. If you're going to unhinge Russian forces north of Solodar, 
Bakhmutsky was is the place you were going to do it. Uh, that is right astride Russian lines of communication and supply for Solidar and everything to the north. So th th this was pretty interesting. Even if it was a raid, meaning a hit-and-run operation, it is still extremely impressive because this was, you know, I, I don't know, eight, nine kilometers. So we're talking five miles behind behind uh, Russian lines. And it isn't the first time that we've had, uh, you know, Russian fire missions, uh, you know, called in on their own positions in, in this area. And, you know, going, going a little quickly, but let's moving, moving farther south to Klishvika. Uh, south of Bakhmut, you go down the rail, rail lines and there is a big S-curve. It's really easy, easy to see. Uh, where the rail line will take a turn to the west, it has to climb up uh, above the Bakhmut River and into, into town. The Russians launched a major, not, let's not call it major, because you know they're, they're dealing with company and platoon-sized attacks. Well, they launched a number of T-80 main battle tanks, some of their more, more modern tanks, four of them supported by infantry fighting vehicles. They made this sort of broad daylight uh, charge abreast, uh, rushing Klishvika, and uh, not surprisingly, they got smoked. Uh, at least three of their tanks damaged uh, the infantry fighting vehicles as well. Uh, you watch, watch the attack unfold. Uh, the Russians released video showing the front part of the attack. Uh, there was some creative editing. Then they showed vehicles pulling back. Uh, of course, after cut of the film, but what happened was this, this charge was thoroughly repulsed by Ukrainian forces. Interestingly enough, uh, the Russian tanks and IFVs came on, guns blazing, shelling the village of Klishvika, uh, indicating that that village was in complete control of the Ukrainian forces. They were just, uh, it appeared, uh, and if this was a Bruce Willis movie instead of a video from the battlefield, you'll think, well, no one could have survived in Klishvika under that kind of fire, but uh, it looked a great deal more effective and spectacular than it actually was because uh, anti-tank weapons were fired and uh, the killing stroke was a, a you know, a, a artillery fire mission called in exactly on the Russian axis of advance. Uh, the Russians were actually forced to put up an airstrike uh, to try to break contact, uh, but that didn't happen. Uh, there was also, uh, again, Ukrainian forces pressing contact south of Klishvika at uh, Andrivka, uh, where... The Russian forces were pushed back. So the net result south of Bakhmut is the line of contact conforms almost entirely uh, to the railway line. Um, Russia is a little bit lucky, you know, that they, uh, they launched this attack, lost four tanks, and they're lucky that Ukraine did not follow this uh, attack up. Uh, meaning once the once the uh, Russian attack was broken up and these vehicles were destroyed, Ukraine did not 
choose to uh, advance against the retreating enemy, which, oddly enough, might have been the reason why Russia conducted this attack, uh, in parentheses, stupid attack, in broad daylight. The one thing that that did do is it deterred Ukraine from falling for the same uh, bait and launching a counterattack again in broad daylight. That's something Ukraine doesn't doesn't fall for uh, very often. But it just sh- it just shows that you know the Bakhmut battle space, although the lines are are somewhat static. This is a this is still a dynamic uh, part of the battlefield. I'm still of the opinion that this is this is Ukraine fighting a positional battle, a fixing uh, action here in Bakhmut. Uh, those Russian tanks that got wasted, they're not going to be valist- They're not going to be fighting south of Velika Novoslika. They're not going to be fighting south of Orkiv. And uh, they're not going to be fighting south of the Dnipro. Bakhmut is a sunk cost for the Russians. So it strikes me, Chuck, almost wherever I look on the battle line, uh, I see increasing confidence of of Ukraine uh, to make uh, such a raid, uh, as we were just talking about, against Bakhmutsky uh, up in the, uh, the Bakhmut map. Uh, or across the Dnipro uh, in Kherson, and to conduct these these deep raids uh, to establish bridgeheads ac- across the, the across the Dnipro, increasing confidence. Uh, and the other thing I wonder: Does Ukraine, uh, and I'm thinking of uh, or Kiev, Vlika uh, uh, Novosilka, uh, do they have? greater freedom of maneuver. I, I, I'll tell you what, I, I, I'm kind of impressed of, about a, a raid that is eight or nine kilometers beyond the zero line. Uh, that takes some rocks. And, I, you know, the target wasn't randomly selected. Uh, Ukraine was able to find a seam uh, they were they were able to find a, a a place that could be penetrated, and of all the places that should have been defended by the Russians, where where they should have been vigilant, uh, where this shouldn't have happened, is on the T of T thirteen zero two. Ukraine shouldn't have been able to get away with this, but the fact that it did. And even if this is a raid, and that you know this this occurred last night, even if they no longer remain in contact, even if they've pulled back to their original fighting positions and pulled back to where they were at the start, this means that Russia is going to have to divert forces back from the from the zero line and secure the rear. Uh, they're going to have to do it. We know the way the Russian system works. So heads are rolling, butts are getting kicked, uh, forces are being redeployed. And, you know, the battle isn't in Bakhmutsky yet. Right now, this is a, so this is a rear security problem for Russia. But it is amazing to me 
And believe me, the Russians are more amazed, more impressed, and uh, more forlorn that what, first of all, Ukraine had the audacity to do this. Second of all, that they, that they pulled it off. And, uh, you know, third, that this, you know, they were operating, they're, they're operating astride Russia's lines of communication. If they could hit back Mutsky, folks, there's, there's a lot of other places they can hit. So Russia wants to hold on to Bakhmut. Uh, I don't want to say more than anything, but, you know, this is their only real uh, urban gain in the last eight or nine months. The fact that Ukraine is playing these guys here and fixing them here is, you know, that is the game. And, I, and I've said this before. What would scare me more than anything is the Russians pulling out of Bakhmut and logically shortening their defensive lines uh, 10 miles east of here. That would scare me. I wouldn't see that as this great Ukrainian victory. It would be a, a moment that I would pause because it would tell me that Russia is somebody, they're drinking the coffee finally, right? Not the Kool-Aid. Uh, but they're not going to do it. They're not going to do it. They've sunk at least 40,000 casualties into taking this place that was and continues to be, was yesterday and will be tomorrow, a place of extremely limited strategic or tactical importance. And Russia is being fixed here. And as long as they've got the kind of commanders that don't know that, that can't figure that out, that don't know that they're being held in place here like a butterfly in a collection with a pin through them, uh, you know, that's good. This is a fixing battle. It, you know, we've never seen Russia make uh, the sensible repositioning uh, of its troops. And I don't think we will uh, in Bakhmut. I don't think we will in uh, Zaporizhia or south of Kherson. Uh, they have had plenty of time uh, to uh, build these defensive lines. They're not dropping, dropping back to them. Uh, they have actually, uh, in just the last couple of weeks, uh, sought to uh, reinforce these defensive uh, trenches uh, to uh, lay more mines in the minefields. But, uh, but they're not using them as you would, would expect them to. Yeah, and, you know, John was just saying about the, uh, you know, Ukraine grappling with its own uh, combat engineering requirements, uh, forming its own defensive positions. Uh, keep seeing uh, film from the battlefield. And again, no coincidences in war, but portions of Russian defensive lines that were poorly established right? Poorly constructed. Uh, you dig a trench on the battlefield, you don't want a straight trench, folks. You want one that has bends and zigzags in it. And uh, it's off recently. Uh, in fact, it must have been yesterday uh, that the film was, uh, the film was posted today. Uh, you, two Ukrainian mortar lines in a straight portion of Russian trench did what in military terms it did great execution upon the enemy again because look you're digging the dirt right 
it, you don't have to, you know, you, you, you're going to dig the trench. So why not do it right? But the Russians aren't. And, you know, I, I cannot, I cannot grasp this. You know, you're digging a defensive position. If you do not construct it according to sound military principles, you're just digging graves. If you dig a long trench that's 100 yards wide, long, and straight, every time the enemy drops around into that trench, it simply is going to blast the shrapnel sideways, cutting your people into pieces. So I look at that and I think, who ordered that? Who, who didn't know this fundamental thing? And why are you putting your forces there? But those are the examples. And I, I, you know, I constantly sit here and I diss the Russian forces every night. I, I, you know, it was beaten into my skull. Don't underestimate the enemy. Don't think he's going to make the same, continue to make the same mistakes. Don't think the enemy is not learning as quickly as you are learning or even faster. Don't turn your back on the enemy. But I see these stupid, basic mistakes made again and again and again. Inadequately and poorly cited defensive positions attacks that take place across the same ground, the same axis, using the same tactics again and again and again, meeting defeat again and again and again. And you, you just have to wonder, is it because this system is so bent, so screwed up that it can't do it? Is, is it that nobody gives a damn over there? Uh, I, I don't know. But it, it, it's, it, you know, it's astounding to me. But I do know this. You cannot lead your guys to defeat constantly. You cannot show them every day that you, you are incapable of delivering success. The, the morale and the fighting, you know, and the combat effectiveness of those units are going to be in decline. And I think it's permanent decline. I just wonder when this whole Russian apparatus, this whole contraption, when it's going to shake apart and, and fall to pieces. On top of the military incompetence at the, at, at the top, look, we know there is a horrendous morale problem. It's a problem of military discipline. It's a, it's a problem of uh, outright mutiny in cases. Uh, I don't know. This is this. I don't think there's ever been a war like this. Actually, it, it's uh, ah, there. It is, Alan. Uh, Chuck, we're going to take one final question from Frank, uh, and then, uh, and I do hope John Spencer, you're listening. Uh, I'm going to end this session of bullet points as I have ended it a couple of times before uh, with a a quote from military historian uh, Williamson Murray. Uh, Frank, go ahead. Thanks so much, Alan. And, th and thanks, Chuck. Uh, you're pulling an overtime shift here. This has been an amazing session. Uh, what, a, what a great treat to get John on here as well, and Dr. Nick and Yehuda for a bit. And uh, it's just been a, a spectacular session. Thanks so much, everybody. 
Um, my question was was about the uh, the let's see the 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 bridgehead that 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 they got that the Ukrainians have formed over the um, you know just in the in the in the Kherson axis, you know, Kozachi uh, Laheri. Uh, I'm probably mangling that, of course, as we all do. Uh, in around and in, in around Oleshki, you mentioned that there's there's two um, two separate uh, um, landings that, that they've managed to secure. Um, given that the Russians blew the dam a few months ago, um, I've got to think that. Um, pardon me, my girlfriend's dogs are. Parkin. Um, I've got to <laughs> think a... that my uh, that that the Russians, you know, they planned all this out. They, they my suspicion would be that that, that Zaporizhia is um, much more heavily mined than than the than the Kherson axis, and um, because the Russians chose to blow the dam instead um, to to slow down the uh, the advance. And so, if that's the if if I want to know if you if you think that's probably true, and then if, if that is true, how a how quickly can the Russians mine it, and or or and on conversely, how b how quickly can Ukrainians pontoon over enough IFVs and and um, and and heavy equipment to actually turn their their light their light infantry uh, uh, bridgehead into. Uh, into a, a you know a, you know potentially a, a main thrust that uh, that could take advantage of, of relatively hopefully relatively uh, more poor poorly defended lines. Yeah, that you know the answer to that question is whether or not Ukraine really intends to uh, you know project power across the Dnipro and. I'm not really sure that they want to do that. And, uh, you know, the reason I think that is with a minimum expenditure of force and resources, they've been able to to compel Russia to divert, uh, you know, maybe 15, possibly 20,000 troops west of Melitopol and south of the Dnipro. Uh, my, my, my sources told me there were, there were, uh, two, two crossing points there, uh, into Kozachi, uh, Lahari. And again, my, my pronunciation isn't any better than, than yours. Uh, I don't think these are existing as complete pontoon spans anymore. Uh, I think they're using, uh, ferries. But uh, there is at least a company size force. I think it's uh, noticeably larger than that. They need to be supplied. Uh, I think what's important for Ukraine to do right now is impress upon the Russians that these two crossing points uh, at the Azov Bridge on the M14 highway and here at uh, Kozachi Lahari, that these are credible threats. And uh, although it will be completely desirable for Ukraine to uh, seize the M14, M17 highway uh, junction there, uh, you know, that's, that's, the, that's the jackpot. I think that the, you know, the 70% military solution is to get these Russian forces 
uh, deployed south of the Dnipro and away from the east-west battle line. So the east-west battle line meaning uh, from Konanski to uh, Vulidar. So I don't know if they really want to press it. Uh, I do know that they want to convince the Russians that this is a legit uh, crossing, that it is a threat, and it is definitely that. Uh, Russia cannot ignore these crossings. And uh, Kozachi Larry was extremely well chosen. And we mentioned this before. There is there's only basically one road into town. Uh, the Vuliana Road. There is another little little road that, that comes in, uh, you know, loops around and comes in from the west. But the Russian forces in responding uh, here at the Cossack camp landing, uh, they are channelized. So Ukraine can bring battle uh, to the Russians and not fire any infantry, right? Every Russian force that tries to move up to contain this this uh, this this particular Ukrainian crossing, they they're they're coming down the same road, and they're getting clocked by artillery. So. I don't know if that this is. I don't know if this is the big, big crossing yet. I mean, that's the very long answer to a to a good question. Thanks so much, Chuck. Uh, thank you, Frank. Uh, well, Chuck, uh, we have made it through all of our maps. I had my doubts, uh, but this is <laughs> this this is the Ferrothon tonight. Uh, almost five hours. Thank you so much. But I had a lot of help, and I, I want to thank John and, and Dr. Nick for coming up. And, uh, you know, that that really important. Frank, thank you for great questions. And, you know, everybody who's on, you guys, bearded, everyone who comes up, um, you know, they're not, they're not so much questions to me. It's, it's people bringing the information in. And like John said, it's sort of the, uh, it's like coming to the VFW and and sharing this information. But hey, if it was a good show, uh, it's because I had Colonel John Spencer uh, talking about leadership development and and training and bringing forces into combat. And I have Doctor Nick backing me up, and I've got Alan, my my radio buddy. Uh, just just thanks everybody. It's look, it's a it's a privilege to be on here. Uh, I look forward to, to being back, and we'll be back Thursday, Alan, if not sooner. And thanks so much. Chuck, it's always a privilege to be here with you. And you know what? Uh, tomorrow, uh, both Ben Hodges and Mick Ryan are, are going to be with us. Uh, for North American listeners, uh, I think Ben Hodges will be here at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, Mick Ryan uh, we'll be here at, uh, uh, well, just a few hours later, uh, 1800 Eastern Time. Uh, for you global listeners uh, in Brisbane, that'll be 8 a.m. Uh, so, uh, Chuck, as I have done before, I, I just want to end tonight's Bullet Points broadcast uh, with this quote Mick Ryan used in his book, War Transformed. Uh, it's from a, a friend of mine, proud to call him a friend, a military historian, 
a Vietnam veteran, uh, Williamson Murray. Uh, and this is what Mick Ryan chose to quote uh, from my good friend, Wick, Wick Murray. War is neither a science nor a craft, but rather an incredibly complex endeavor which challenges people to the core of their souls. It is, to put it bluntly, not only the most physically demanding of all the professions, but also the most demanding intellectually and morally. The cost of slovenly thinking at every level of war can translate into the deaths of innumerable men and women, most of whom deserve better from their leaders. And I think, Chuck, that's exactly what you and John Spencer and Dr. Nick were talking about tonight. Yeah, it, 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 it is an honor. Uh, you know, it was an honor for me to lead uh, SEAL platoons in combat. It was, uh, it was, the, it was the greatest honor of my life. And, uh, you know, it, it's a team effort. Uh, I, I think in the naval special warfare community, we are absolutely the most uh, collegial and dare I even say democratic fighting unit uh, in the U.S. military. We are uh, really a band of peers. There is somebody in charge, though, but uh, we we take the team part really seriously, and uh, I think that pays it pays off for the country that uh, has sent us in the battle. But like John said, it, it, it is because uh, we, we share this training, a certain basis of training and a certain ethos. And, uh, uh, you know, and we take it, it's a profession. So I, I love that quote, Alan. And uh, I, I'm looking forward to meeting Wick myself one day. So I'm looking forward to that. But thank you again for a wonderful, great show, Alan. Appreciate it so much. John, uh, I, I know you're busy editing, but thank you, brother, for, for coming up. You're always welcome. And Dr. Nick as well. It's easy to look good when you got friends like that. <laughs> so thanks a lot, everybody. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm out of here, but thanks so much. And Alan, I'll see you, see you, uh, see you soon. See you Thursday. Yeah, thank you very much, Chuck. Yes, I'll see you Thursday for the next uh, bullet points here on Maria Report.